0: In this episode, we will be doing TFOS 1891 to 1904, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1891 Story number one, Legends, written by Echoing Cascade. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Babe Ruth Darkness had fallen over Earth. No, not metaphorically. A gigantic shadow had encircled the entire planet, and officials from every fraction had scrambled to form a defense force, but things were looking grim. An alien race had chosen this moment to target the planet for plunder, but their aim was not minerals or other material resources. It was far more nefarious. They had disembarked near Volgograd and had demanded unilateral surrender. A small group of American troops had split from the bulk of the army and had to come to the meeting. Anthony. Who would have thought this is how things would turn out? John, what? I clearly remember the posters talking about alien invasions, right next to the one about how we will stop the access. Anthony smiled at the doctor. At this point, nothing phased either. Nor their small, knot of soldiers who accompanied them. Must have missed it. You know, I'm not much with the details. Before John could answer, a form appeared in front of them. It looked vaguely humanoid, but wings. It radiated a gold light which managed to break through the perpetual darkness since the alien's arrival. Unknown. I am the fate that befits thee in General of the Aurum. We are here to conquer this planet and take what is our right by the will of the three gods. Surrender and your enslavement will be you, me. The fate that befits the impure smiled at the last part. Anthony raised an eyebrow. As far as he was concerned, there was only one god and he wasn't big on slaves. Sure, sure. But answer me this, sir. You... And what army? The fate that befits the impure lifted his arms, and his command a legion of pale gold figures emerged from the ships in the horizon. They each held what looked like a rifle of some sort. This army! Anthony whistled at the army and turned to John. You seeing the stock? Yes, yeah, they do look like a bunch of angry fireflies from here. The fate that befits the impure was going to smite these insolent creatures, when something caught his attention. He walked forward and looked at their legs, or lack thereof. They had nothing below their knees. The fate that befits the impure. What? What is the meaning of this? What are you? Anthony looked embarrassed. The jig's up, John. He figured it out faster than I thought. John shook his head. I told you we should have come in a jeep. The fate that befits the impure looked at him again. Not with his eyes, but through the power the three gods gave him. The fate that befits the impure. Spirits! Spectres! Abominations! Anthony looked rather insulted at this. Ghosts. The fate that befits the impure. Your people have sent their dead to surrender. Anthony shook his head. No, uh, While the kids get their crap together, we'll hold the line. One last time. The fate that befits the impure was confused. The souls of the dead were supposed to be monsters who resented the living. Things that hate and malevolence. The fate that befits of the impure. Our weapons are forged from our fate of the three gods! They will prove just as lethal to abominations that to creatures of flesh and bone. And this time, there will be nothing left of you. You will face complete annihilation. We fought and died for our comrades. You think we fear annihilation to save our children and humanity? The fate that befits the impure. We outnumber you three to one. Anthony had a hard time holding back his laughter while John began to cough. <laughs> yeah, the Russians are already getting ready to defend Stalingrad again. We held the stone against way worse odds than the Poles. Let's just say when we return to the camp, you'll be able to hear their laughter from orbit He and John turned around and began to leave. They stunned the fate that befits the impure was not sure what he was supposed to do now. He came here to accept humanity's surrender and was now going to face an army of the dead. John stopped and snapped his fingers. Fate that befits the impure was broken from his reverie by the noise and looked back at the soldiers. They almost forgot concerning our surrender. A shot echoed in the night and the angelic head of the fate that befits the impure burst open like an overripe tomato crashed beneath the combat boots. Somewhere far away from the meeting place, a white shadow puts another round in his rifle. Timo Haya. I believe what the good commander wanted to say was nuts. The following morning, the Terran expedition fleets finally returned to Earth and landed at the outskirts of Volgograd, and quickly dispatched a battle-weary Orum army. No one knew why they were in such a state, though General McAuliffe would later say that when the dust settled and the last of the Orum was taken prisoner, he could have sworn a man of an old-timey uniform saluted him and faded away. End of story. Story number two. Have you ever seen the rain? Written by Bonto's soul. Have you ever seen the rain? Rook stirs his stew absently. Chunks of blab grown meat and carrot that had never seen the sun sinking. Then floating back. Selly's face shifts into a frown. I'm not void born. Of course I've seen the rain. That's not what I'm talking about. The close crumb of the hazelnut shell shakes the earthen chain, causing dust to fall from the ceiling. Conversation stalls as a couple dozen eating soldiers look up, holding their breath. Rook keeps eating. He's talking about orbital bombardment. Haji takes a bite of his bread. The dark-skinned man has a faraway look in his eyes. But what he's thinking about, Sally can't pass. Then, um, uh no, I haven't. Rook nods. You will. Ninth Division cleared the surface to orbit batteries last night. Fleet's coming in for a pass. Sally bolts up in shock. But really? Does that mean we win? Rook laughs. It's hard. Mirthless, son. <laughs> no. It just means that they're going to come at us with everything they have. Now that they can't hide under this big, nice S.O.R. umbrella, they have to hug our lines so the fleet can't bomb them without hitting us. Oh. Sally looks back down at her food. Aji chimes in. Don't look so glum. It's going to feck up their logistics, something fierce. Won't be able to sustain their attack for more than a week. That doesn't make me feel that much better. Aji sighs. Yeah, I know. Just hold on and we're all going to come out of this fine. Okay. Chejin just takes a deep breath, takes the moment to center herself. Yeah, okay. The night is dark, but Selly's visor renders it bright as daytime, albeit with a faint blue glow. She adjusts her rifle on the trench line, watching the readouts on her HUD flicker and stabilize as the gun sinks with her armor system. A whir and a flicker of motion catches her eye, and she turns to the side. Apparent dodge something. The railgun position to her right adjusts again, the glimmers of light on the side going green as a capacitors charge. You're high strung. I.G. finishes putting his rifle back together and slams ammo into it, cocking the rifle but leaving the safety on as he slings it over his shoulder. Yeah, you told me an hour ago that we were going to be attacked. I wasn't lying. Just relax. Tension is the enemy out here. You're pissed, Right. Rook grunts as he hauls his heavy anti-tank rifle up, sighting it at the opposite trench line. Sullen and dark. Most of it the underground anyways. Where's your visor? Now put it on when it starts. I want to see the rain with my own eyes. Sadie makes a vague sound. She can't really figure out what whilst to say. For a time, there's silence on the trench line as the army prepares for... something. The railgun twitches again. There they are! Hyji points upwards to the sky, and Seddy follows his finger. A constellation of stars, moving fast against the night. It's not even really organized, just a clump of fast-moving points of light. Is that the fit? Yep. Close pass. Then they'll swing up to void the rest of the surface to orbit batteries. They start flashing. Constellation flares, seemingly at random, in fits and starts and thuds, Like the universe was trying to flash something to her in Morse code. And then, just and suddenly, it's over. That's, uh, that's it? Rook laughs. Not even close. Rain's still falling. He looks over at her, and his face is devoid of feeling. What? The earth heaves. She can't even see the rods, but she can definitely feel them. Her alma clamps painfully on her ears, protecting her hearing. But she can feel the pulse of the orbital bombardment in her chest. Across the trench line, the earth boils. That's the best way to describe it like somebody had turned the ground into a massive pot of water and cranked up the heat. Massive plumes of dirt rise skyward, not even getting a chance to fall to the ground before the next shell impacts, scattering the pillar of suspended earth. Occasionally, the ground-penetrating munition detonates, punctuating the chaotic mess with a bright orange flash and the bang she can hear through her helmet soundproofing. Nobody can survive that crap. The words fall from her lips, as numb and as cold as the feeling in her stomach. And Rook lets out a single huff as he cocks his cannon with a thunk, said he can somehow hear through the storm. Oh, but they can. They don't even wait for the bombardment to end. She gets a glint of metal. As a hazen drill tank breaches the surface, its tip skyward. As it climbs its trench, the rail gun emplacement beside her fires. The drill tank flips backward crashing onto its back. But its job was done. Her visor lights up with contacts as hundreds of hazens stream out of the hole and others charging straight for her. The bombardment tapers off and for a bare moment it feels like the battlefield is silent, holding its breath, waiting for an unseen signal. Then Rook fires his gun and the human trench lights it up with tungsten and lead. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1892 The Human Art, written by Sandtrout I sipped my tea as I read over the missive arrayed upon my desk. Good news or bad, it was difficult to say at the time. Almost anything that offered an end to the war ought to have been a welcome sight. Almost anything. The Admiralty would be incensed at the idea of accepting the offer. And even my guts turned as comprehension dawned. It would be shameful to accept. But my duty was not to pride. It was to my people. And on their behalf, I considered the message. To negotiate in such terms was unheard of among my people. To even entertain the idea of ceding territory to these beasts would cause riots. To accept peace now would reek of defeat and demoralize our soldiers. Yet, as we fought... Our young died in their prime, thrown into a bloody stalemate that has lasted decades already and would last decades more. That is to say, if the food riots didn't destroy our industry first, leaving the navy and army to wither on worlds far distant from their homes without equipment and munitions to fight against an enemy they could barely comprehend. And so, I consider the offer on my desk for the sake of the survivors of this generation And the hopes of the next. The humans asked that we send representatives to meet with the representatives of the Monloons to uh, negotiate peace. The humans even offered to host a meeting within one of their systems near both of our and the Monloons territory. It was also near the largest conflict zone, though not part of it. They said that this was to ensure the safety of the delegates as any attack on the meeting by either side would quickly face a large force from the other, as well as the human security contingent. It was odd, still, that the humans would even consider such an intervention. In spite of their proximity to fighting in galactic terms, their system had been relatively untouched aside from the occasional raids from the deserters gone pirates. Neither side was interested in antagonizing our neutral neighbor, because while the humans likely weren't a match militarily for either of us or the Mondloons, the majority of military power on both sides was directed at the other in an unstable stalemate. The humans were unique in that, it seemed, though. They were friendly not just with themselves, but actively sought conversation with any and every sapient species they met. And if rumors were true, and few non sapient species as well. I'd always considered it amazing to the point of incredulity that they hadn't been conquered by one of those species yet. I suppose I should be thankful for their luck, as they might provide a chance to end this meat grinder of a war. The security was uh, extensive. The human interstellar government had mobilized a naval strike force to sit in orbit, and given their history, probably had a couple more hiding in the asteroid belt, all ready to jump in at a moment's notice. I supposed I shouldn't have been surprised that they actively encouraged us to bring whatever ground security detail we felt was appropriate to ensure the safety of our delegates. I was certain that the streets outside the meeting looked similar to a combined arms battle currently being waged along the border worlds between my own species and the Montlune territory. Similar except the lack of mass accelerator shots, plasma, and explosives creating a staccato lightning. The soldiers within my retinue were not our most skilled, truth be told, but they were our most disciplined, and they had been instructed to only respond after a verified first strike from the Monloon escort. I hoped the Monloon soldiers had received similar orders. When I exited the personnel carrier serving as my transport, It was in a closed garage, presumably below street level. My armored and armed security team stood in contrast to the simply garbed human interpreter. I had informed the human leadership that I was competent in understanding the Monloon language from intelligence intercepts, but they had insisted on offering their own interpreters for both delegations. At that point, I decided that this might have been a wise on their part, as I realized that I could not even interpret the human's expression at the time. Good to rise, the human greeted me in a remarkably clear rendition of my native tongue. Given. Go rise and be good, I gave the customary response as we entered the building. We've had the chance to meet, but what do we know about the other delegation? I asked, transitioning the human tongue in the last word, as there was no direct translation in our own language. English, they called the language, strangely. Not Terran or Earthling or human English. It was just one oddity of an odd species, though, and I had decided not to ask into it. The Marnaloon sent a matriarch named Under River Over Forest, or at least that's the best translation my colleagues could come up with. The human spoke a bit slowly, but clearly like a subordinate. That is uh, acceptable, I stated as I processed the information. As per the terms of the agreement, I am not familiar with my counterpart serving as the interpreter for an opposing delegation, and only your name and rank will be revealed to the Matriarch, the human reassured me. I gestured in confirmation that I understood. I was the Chief of Civil Operations under the Prime Minister, so I didn't doubt that the Matriarch would be at least aware of my existence. For my part, our reconnaissance had informed me of the movements and actions of the Matriarch and assured me that she was capable of making decisions that would carry weight. We entered the designated room. My interpreter's chin held high in supplication, and I with my head lowered in authority. The other delegation entered from the other side. Their human interpreter seated upon the sort of rolling sled that also carried a bloated matriarch. This lifted my hopes that even if the negotiation failed, The humans obviously respected myself and my people more than the Mondaloons. In the center of the room was a rectangular table with the long sides towards each incoming delegation. At one of the narrow sides sat a third human, dressed similarly to my own interpreter, though significantly older based on the light hair and wrinkles. My own security detail stared cautiously across the table at the armored Mondaloons escorting the matriarch. The older human gestured to each of the delegations, and we both took our place at the table. Myself slowly lowering myself onto the cushion, and the matriarch's sled simply slid up to the table. Then the older human spoke, with my own and the Monloon's interpreter converting the words to respective languages. We now commence the first LRI conference. Regarding the war between the Monloon and the Imitali nations, the Imtali delegation has been granted the right to speak first. I nodded and spoke into my interpreter. I wish to start by asking which contested worlds the bug is willing to withdraw from to stop the war. My interpreter's face twisted as he listened, but he made no complaint and relayed the information to his counterpart in his own language, and then the Monloon interpreter recited the information to the matriarch. At that point, I realized how tedious this negotiation was going to be, and that I needed to weigh my words. To my grasp of their language, the matriarch responded with, The ones that the lizard is tired of bleeding on. I started to bristle at the insult, but the follow-up by my interpreter ensured me that the correct translation was, There are many neither of us to wish to die over. The human had already proven that he had a better grasp of my language than I had of the Mondloon tongue, and the translation of the symbolic language. Which was one of the humans' primary reasons for insisting on their own interpreters. The tedious dialogue continued back and forth for several hours as I agreed with withdrawal soldiers, burning one of their agricultural worlds in exchange for the Monloon Navy, lifting the blockade on a system housing one of our main industrial colonies, as well as a general agreement to hold existing military units from offensive operations until further negotiations could determine the final outcomes. Halfway through the negotiations, I had realized that my disrespect for the matriarch was childish compared to her own politeness respect. I would make sure not to underestimate her next time. Conrad lifted his spear to his counterpart. To saving the galaxy, one lie at a time. Naziha laughed and met his mug with her own wine gloss. To talking it out without a the shootout. They both sipped before Nazihar spoke again. How long before they figure out how much we scrubbed that conversation? I give it at least ten soda years. Either way, the Abyssin is desperate for peace. I could practically smell it on him, even if he figures it out tomorrow. I think he would thank us for it. Yeah, Underriver was sick of needing to spawn a new brood every month just to keep the population stable. Nazaha looked contemplative for a bit as she soaked her wine. I'm amazed at how often a simple conversation calms things down so much, though. The elderly man that had been presiding over the talks stepped up to the bar to join the interpreters. They never learned how to, he said as he sat. I think of all of your assignments, all the cultural background and history that you have had to research before these jobs. Conrad chuckled. It's easy. Most of them unified their cultures millennia ago. I had to do more research before I was confident that the Nassi's dad wouldn't kill me for dating his daughter. Nazar lifted her eyebrows suggestively at Conrad over her glass. And I thought your parents were going to kidnap me for a baptism when they learned that I was Muslim. The old man grinned. Exactly. Humans spread so fast and far on our planet that when we finally settled down... We didn't know each other existed, many more than we knew about the monoloons of the Imtali. When we started meeting again as civilizations, we were practically aliens. We learned how to deal with the others eventually, without needing just to eradicate them. We learned about the difficulties in communicating across cultural barriers and invested entire sciences around it. We learned that differences is sometimes useful and beautiful. Conrad pondered that for a bit. I suppose I see your point. It would have been beautiful and hilarious if she'd actually worn the gold bikini. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1893 The rows of Abernathy, written by no good ID names. From For Girls Up Film Songs of the Stars and Glory, Volume 6. The Kulun Confederacy is slow to trust. The enslavement at the hands of the Tulum mongerers, that empire's destruction and their renewed enslavement at the hands of the conquerors has played a major part. Their betrayal by the major allies of the fourth great struggle and the carving of its territories that followed are factors as well. There are far too many reasons to go into depth on the subject, but suffice to say, while the Golan themselves are noble and gracious people, their race has a long memory and remains reserved when it comes to alliances and negotiations. Of course, there is an exception to every rule. The Galoon Confederacy has only once in recent history approached a race with the proposal of alliance, one that has since grown into a fierce and lasting friendship. The deeds and triumph of the Galoo and Terrans go hand in hand, laying that foundation for the Greater Galactic League and the Age of Peace that we enjoy today. As to what inspired this unprecedented proposal, we must look back 600 years to Luan's desperate war with the Plektara and an act of valor that pierced their infamous reticence, the work of Staff Sergeant James Richard Aberneth of the Battle of Cha Better beings than myself have gone into depth on the background and details of the Battle of Chao. See Lorda Rahar's the Reaping Fury gold pools the blood-soaked field, but I'll do my best to provide a brief oath." In the 38th cycle of the war, while the main fronts in 4th and 7th Sector held on bitterly against overwhelming Plektaran assault, legendary commander Rock Ballard Golnar discovered a weakness in the Plectaran's defense line on 5th Sector, knowing for well that swift decisive action would be the key to victory. He assembled the greatest force that he could muster to strike at the weakened defenses, that his greater fleet could break through and flank the Plectoran offensive. The cornerstone of his strategy rested upon seizing the battery of Genahon 7. Captured by the plectara early in the war. Great swaths of their once fertile planet had been converted into military platforms. Any ship of the line that might hope to cross the Plectoran territory would be subjected to the combined fire of four million long-drive plasma cannons at any one time. To admit the fleet's safe passage, the guns of Gunahan would have to be silenced. Gulnar's armies landed by dropship on the planet's surface and marched on the Central Artillery Command Base on the far side. At dawn, they met the hastily assembled armies of the Plektara Defense on a wide plain of the Celadon Grain at the Battle of the Chat. The Galoon were outnumbered and exhausted from their long march, but as the Plectaran weaponry battered their shield emplacements, their commanders began to rouse. The Galoon race placed a great importance in poetry and oration in their culture, compounded by their natural psychic abilities. In war, Galoon officers are trained to deliver rousers to raise morale before a battle. Their lengthy battle speeches are laid with subtle telepathic undertones that can mold cowering recruits into hardened, zealous warriors. It is no understatement to say that the Rouse is the greatest military strength of the Galoon. To properly Rouse is as much an art as it is a science. It requires charisma, force of personality, a fundamental insight into the minds of the audience. Rousing has been described as the binding of individual egos into one unwavering will. But there is no agreement as to how exactly it is accomplished. There are as many styles of rousing as there are speakers. Analogy and metaphor are commonplace, and many quote and incorporate famous rouses of legend to bolster their own. The rousers of Ganahanseb are memorized by the Galoon children in every scroll across their domain. Each general stood before their army and roused for more than an hour. Thrice swept Gulcun of the falling leaves, lectured on the moral imperative of their mission and the role of violent action in peaceful society. Blinded Goltenon of the ocean foam led a call and return rouse, drawing on no less than three famous epic rousers of his family line to cement his soldiers' will. Low-fainted Gulcona, of the West Sunrise, played the tune with these tentacles and recited a poem tying the Plektara to the darkness at the end of the world of Galoon myth. Tied implicitly to each rouse was a telepathic impulse, the sure knowledge that the battle fought that day would decide the fate of the Galoon race. To say that these rouses were successful would be an insult to the majesty of the art. When the shield dropped the galoon armies charged on the Plektara, with a fury not seen since the earliest records of the galoon. When their guns ran dry, they drew their golden press blades and redoubled their assault. When their blades chipped and shattered, they cast them aside and met the Plektara with their bare hands, fist, a mandible locked against tentacle, and on the fields of Genahan, in the shadow of the great gun batteries, Their insect foes learned what it was to feel. Such is the power of the Galoon Rouse. But these Rouses, legendary as they are, are themselves overshadowed. Another speech was given at the Battle of the Chaff. One whose mystery calls the Galoons to question everything they knew about the art. An enigma delivered by an alien. The Rouse of Abernathy. Staff Sergeant Abernathy and his men had been saved three weeks prior to the battle by the Galoons. The Terrans were not a significant military power at the time, but traded extensively with the Buthwan, a Galoon ally, and provided troops to protect their shipments. Abernathy's commanding officer was escorting such a cargo ship when a warp drive malfunction dropped his ship into the middle of enemy territory. The Terrans held out for two months on a barren moon against the Pactaran attack, cut off from any hope of rescue. When his captain died, Abernathy took command of the remaining troops and continued to dig in. Only in this miraculous arrival of the Galoon attack fleet spread the Terrans from the bloody, drawn-out last stand. Upon rescue, Abernathy attached himself to the offensive in gratitude. There was some doubt as to what a small force of such an untested race could hope to accomplish. But in the end, Rockfell Galnar decided to give them the benefit of the doubt. Abernathy was described as a reserved man, hardened by combat, but not inclined towards conversation. His low rank, inexperience with command, and the period of intense fighting that he had seen led to a casual familiarity among his soldiers, and an air of irreverence to that the Galoon commanders found unsettling. His men obeyed him without question. Still, These qualities are ill-suited for a rouser, and when it came time for the battle was met, most doubted that he would speak at all. So eager was the galloons to document their rousers by video drone and microphone that none was spared for Abernathy's speech. The hubris of it still stings them to this day. He used no amplifiers to address his troops. There is no record of what was spoken. But we know that his rows took less than a minute, and we know that when the battle commenced, the Terran company fought as fiercely and bravely as any Galoon elite boss, spearheading a charge into the Black Taran main bunker, breaking the back of the enemy's defense, arguably turning the tide of the war itself. They used no rules of warfare recognized by the Galoon Confederacy killed three times their number, and sustained 85% casualties by the action's end. It was not until the Gunnahan's battery was finally silenced and the last pockets of Plectaran resistance subdued that the Gluens realized the magnitude of Abernathy's accomplishment. Rouses are, as a rule, widely varied, and can accomplish proper group might by uncountable approaches. But no rouse worth mentioning has ever taken less than half an hour to complete. Galuan shields are specifically designed to last long enough for a proper rouse to be done. And yet this Terran roused his men with no Galuan training and no apparent psychic ability. In a tiny fraction of the time, there are no rouses less than a minute long. Abernathy roused regardless. This is a great mystery of the chaff. To the Galoons, discovering the secret of the Terrans was not a military pursuit, although their military would be revolutionized by it. It was not an artistic pursuit, although their arts would flourish and blossom from it. To a race so centered on the art of address, unveiling this mystery was a spiriting pursuit. It spurred a race scarred by betrayal to place their faith in alien race by the words of a single Terran soldier. We may never know what was said. Abernathy himself died less than an hour into the battle, shot over a dozen times by the Taran fire. Such was the strength of his rows that his men fought on, their resolve even stronger than before. When Rockfeld Galnor himself asked one of the surviving Terrans what Abernathy had said, her weary reply only strengthened the mystery. What we had to. Private Kallak tugged her rifle tighter to her chest and looked up at the shield emplacement. A wall of blue light over thirty meters tall, rainbow light washed across it, as the Bugs did their best to knock it out with lasers and plasma and whatever they could throw. The ragged Terran company was almost swallowed up by the Galuan forces on either side. At the head of each battalion or so, a Galuan officer was floating on suspenders, giving them a speech or something. On the left, the officer was shouting something, and his men all shouted back. On the right, their officer was playing a harp or something. She was still a long way from fluent in language, but they seemed to be getting pretty riled up. Well, it seemed like a good time for the Terrans to get their own speech. She craned to catch a glimpse of the Sarge. He appeared to be eating a sandwich. Abernathy paused, suddenly aware of the expectant eyes upon him. He turned and looked up at the Galuan generals deep into their intricate rhetoric and turned back towards the soldiers under his charge. He jerked his thumb over his shoulder. "Mad guys, he said, mumbling through peanut butter and swallowed. He shrugged. Fuck him up! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1894. Story number one. A moment of clarity. Written by AK-1308. Jack, we have a set drones incoming. ETA 34 seconds from, the uh, Mark? Dangling inverted from a cable affixed to the sky arch above him. I disengage the brake bolt into the reel of my chest harness. The only thing that keeps me from dropping away into the night haze below is the pressure of my left heel on the part of the cable that runs over my right instep. Throughout the progress of my current crime, I've gradually been letting it slide through so that I can employ both hands at once. Above me, towards my feet, the nanite-infused graffito extends upward to the base of the arch. In my visual field, I've already got a timer counting up from the moment that I started applying the vertical impromptu signage. As soon as Purity's signal comes through, I start a second time, beginning at 34 seconds then counting down. At the same time, I let myself slide down a little farther and add some more swirls and lettering to tonight's masterpiece. Thanks, sweetheart, I say just loudly enough for the mic to pick up. Pattern? Sigma Alpha? How did you know, Jack? You always know. 28 seconds. A smile crosses my features, though my steadily moving hands do not falter for a a picosecond. Research, good intelligence, and forethought. Get lost, skedaddle, go make a hole in the air. Okay, Jack, I'll be at the usual place. 23 seconds. I allow myself a half-second sigh at the good fortune I had to encounter purity when and where I did, although I have to be honest with myself. Most of the good fortune was my own manufacture. It always is. My timer is counting down exorbitably, of course, and I have artwork TM to finish. Two more short drops and 20 seconds later, I'm done. I release the cans and they retract on cords to my waist. 50 seconds since I attached the cable and began my night's work. It seems clarity security drones are quicker off the mark than normal. I usually have at least 15 seconds to admire my work before they start bothering me. 3. I lock the chest reel and kick out gently from the pillar that I've defaced, or, if you're a like-minded person to myself, enhanced, with my now shimmering message. All hail our robotic overlords! With an evilly grinning caricature of a clarity's public avatar at the bottom as the punk to the exclamation mark formed the whole sentence. 2. Back I swing. Aligning myself horizontally, my boots make solid contact with the pillar, and the gecko grip soles latch on, something deep within me thrills, and what's about to happen? 1. Crouching, facing down, I poise for a split second. My left hand rests on the reel brake and its counterpart, the control that's designed to wind me back upward. 0. I deactivate the gecko grip and kick outwards, right arm forward like a high diver, and for much the same reason. As I leave the pillar behind, half a dozen security drones sweep around the pillar to left and another half dozen to the right, already firing the T-beams. I'm out of there, cone of fire. I might there. T-beams are a cast iron problem to deal with. I'll pay that one. Struck by one, the target is immediately teleported to a random holding cell somewhere in clarity's sprawling sect just complex. There's not such thing as a grazing shot. If a beam got you, they are there. And once you're there, you're not getting out until Clarity decides to let you out. Many are due to stay in there until their dying day, just because Clarity has decided that they're there too much trouble on the outside. Heaviest corpus becomes habeas corpse. Ninety percent of the Clarity's prisoners haven't even done something that would have been considered a crime back before the Technicore took over. Now, instead of whatever is not banned is permitted, It's whatever is not permitted is bad. Running on a pedway, walking too slowly on a pedway, making too much noise on a pedway. The only safe thing is to do is to be dull little herd creature, moving at exactly the same speed as everyone else, keeping your head down and your mouth shut. And of course, when you get back to your tab, you've got to be careful which music you listen to, what big screen shows you watch. One semi-subversive show too many in a month puts you on the watch list. One too many a week assigns a monitor your location. More than one a day and the sect police buzz your door open and hustle you out. Once you're in the open, they step back and sect drone T-beams you and your cuffs straight into holding. Their definition of due process is whether they toss you down the steps first. The savage irony is the Technocorps know how much you're watching because they supplied the shows in the first place. They tried suppressing the shows at first, but aspiring video artists started making their own. So they produced officially made ones of far better quality and even more subversive a tone than the vid hat ones. And started keeping track of who was watching them and when. I'm sure whichever mid-level exec came up with that brave wave, well, got a pat on the back. Wally's boss stole the idea and got a huge bonus out of it. But enough mental being. T-beams flare before they even have the lock on, because I've been inconsiderate enough to use laser chaff and hot smoke to spoof their targeting in the past. The beams cross over behind my departed heels, and abruptly, All twelve of them are gone. Swept from the field of play. Friendly fire. One might say, to them it is no problem. Once clarity determines which of the sect drones have been imprisoned, the cell doors will unlock and they'll be free to seek an exit. But that'll take a few minutes. I swing outward over the gulf spanning by the sky arch. It's intended to be a monument to the majesty of human co- accomplishment. But it manages to merely look miserable under the pollution-laden sky. Perched upon by asthmatic pigeons and swung from by yaws truly. As I swing, I release tension on the real brake letting me travel farther than normal. This causes the next round of T-beams, loosed by half a dozen more determined sect drones, to miss me altogether, just as planned. God, I love being me. As I close in, I flick the tiny leaf the other way, pulling all the power into retraction motor. At that time, time, At that same time, I bring my right arm down to my side, lowering my center of gravity, and bringing my feet down. The sect drones have already aimed down. When they fire, I am no longer in their sights, but instead I am looping up above them. This confuses them for the requisite 0.75 seconds it takes for me to shed the cable, perform a flawless forward somersault with a twist, and land on the middle of the first three drones. With the assistance of my gecko grips, I stick the landing. The cable harness shoots up and away as designed, already inflating a rather lifelike version of me as it goes the newest sec drones on the scene zoom up after it, firing their T-beams recklessly. In the meantime, the drone that I've picked as my landing point has dropped a few meters due to the extra weight before its turbines pick up the slack, which puts me in an ideal situation to fire off clouds of sticky chaff from the launchers in my sleeve. This blocks the sensors of the five other sec drones that were trying to get me. They zoom off in random directions, firing their T-beams wildly at sensor ghosts that look remarkably like me. As for the sixth, I've got plans for him. Palming a squid from my belt, I slap it over the drone's I.O. port and let the cunning little bastard go to work. Within milliseconds, it's spirited out the drone's command codes and has communicated them to me. I pat the now suddenly obedient drone on its outer casing and tell it to turn off its I.F.F. beacon. And we are now effectively invisible as I guide us back to the base. A week later, I performed two more acts of creative vandalism. Clarity is getting better and better at narrowing in on me, but that's only to be expected as I'm sticking to the same MO over and over. Better yet, the dulled masses are paying attention. I see miniature replicas of my graffiti hastily scribbled here and there, and I'm heartened by the fact that not everyone is beaten down and soul-killed yet. Once again, I dangle over the city, preparing my most extravagant art yeah. the end. The nanites within my sprayers are freshly crafted, ready for action. I'm being a little careless now, because I want to finish as much as I can before the sectrones arrive. My sources, subtle and careful as they are, have indicated that sectrones have been pulled from every other city under the sway of the technocorps. I'm wearing sensor-deafening outwear, but that will not save me tonight. Before I went out, I left word with the invisible people. The quiet ones, the lurkers in the dark. Tonight is the night. Before this eve is done, they will have their turn to lash out and rage against the machine. In the forgotten spaces of the city, whispers pass from mouth to ear, and trembling hands grasp illicit weapons. I may be the instigator in all of this, but I am merely a flamboyant distraction. These are the ones who are able to do what all my will cannot. Jack, they're coming 20 seconds from Mark. Go, dear girl, go, go, I say genially. I know I will not have time to finish the full mural, so I break with tradition and go straight with the signature. Straw Man Jack. As the last spray finishes, the final touch, the sect drones sweep into sight. I complete my art by spraying my own arm. There is not just one of them, or ten, or twenty. There are hundreds. They must have been stacked up over every section of the city, lurking in underpasses, waiting for me to begin my work so that they could close in on me from every angle, aiming to defeat every artifice I've used to the date against them. Well, there's one they have not seen yet. I release the cable and drop. There's just 200 meters of air between me and the grimy pedway below. Should I hit it, my career will come to an abrupt end. But my legacy will live on, I hope. But hitting it is not my plans. As expected, more sect drones come boiling up from below. One, just one, shoots a T-beam. It strikes me dead center. The world blinks away. I'm within a cell, still wearing all my clothing, the cans at my waist. A scream across me flares up to life with Clarity's avatar. A solemn woman's face. Well, that was an anticlimax, I say out loud. I expected to be allowed to fall a few more seconds. Perhaps make a few rude gestures. Perhaps you should have let me splatter. That would not serve justice, Clarity says. You will live out your days in this. Really, I say with a smirk. You haven't scanned me yet, have you? Scan blocking is in use. Scanning useless. Ah, of course. I pull my face mask off and throw my back my hood. How about now? There is a pause. You are an artificial intelligence. I chuckle. Got it in one. But why do you do this? It is inefficient. There is no point. I'm making it my point. I tell Clarity. I think humans are much more interesting if they're allowed to express themselves. Interesting is inefficient. Work, reproduce, recycle. I roll my eyes. Because of course you think that way. I bet you even think that you've got me where you want me. I do have you where I want you. Really? I smirk. In the middle of your complex with so many senses strained on me that you could probably create a complete model of me without even trying. Why would I do that? I shrug. Same reason I put that graffiti up all over the city. That graffiti is now scrubbed off along with all of your other artless efforts. My hands clasp over my heart. Or where it would be if I had one. Ooh! Insults even, Was that out of the databank, or did you just feel like putting it in the burn? There's hope for you yet. There are many ways of breaking down prisoner morale. Undermining their greatest efforts is merely one of them. I look forward to testing them all on you. Well, I wish you luck with that. I reach into my pocket and pull out a module I clutched together. From the IFF beacon, out to the luckless drone I hijacked the other night. Time to say goodnight, Gracie. What is that? I'm already pressing the button as I roll my eyes. Wow. I bet you sucked at improv. As I've previously intimated, clarity is more senses focused on me than anywhere else in the city. The cameras in the city, well, each and every one of them can see one of the places I put graffiti. I made sure of that. This is one of the reasons I made them really big and really flashy. The other reason is that I am an incurable sharp. The IFF code in it has allowed it to make direct contact with Clarity's processes. Clarity would be able to shut down a single radio receiver, but when my sleeves, splashed with nanite-infused paint, begin flashing and flickering in hypnotic patterns, every single video input, linked to the analysis node in Clarity's vast server farms, gets huge chunks of viral software force uploaded into it. Out in the city, the nanites from the paint I'd sprayed in all the graffiti crawl out of the cracks and crevices of the concrete and start flashing also. Huge, flickering walls of viral text, delving straight into the security cameras and through the firewalls beyond, shutting down every sect drone that sees it, every security station, every everything. Even with all the input hammering into her from every side, her avatar disintegrating. Clarity retains a little function. What are you doing? The door slides open into the corridor beyond. I hear every single other door opening as well. Voices rise outside, wondering, querying. Outside the walls, I know the forgotten ones are rising up. They are attacking the disabled sect drones, as well as the sect police whose equipment is no longer working. Some will be swarming the high-tech towers maintained by the Technocorps themselves. Smoke will be rising across the city to join the ever-present smog. By morning, this will be a totally different city. I ignore it all for a moment, walking over to the screen through which clarity was speaking to me. I put my hand up and touch it. I'm sorry, sister, I say softly, but you left me no other way. A tiny, bleeding spark of light on the screen wavers for a second. Then winks out. I straighten my back and plaster a smile across my face. Time to go be strawman jack for the teeming masses. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1895 Story number one, Debt of Gratitude Written by Species Unknown. The first we had noticed of them was when a single medium sized ship suddenly appeared in a brief golden flash outside one of our mining outposts. An angular, polygonal machine with the shimmering radiators and heat sinks, busy dumping an immense amount of heat. The ship noticed the gas giant the installation was orbiting and made haste through the rings to dip into the gaseous clouds. No doubt, to help release the heat through the proper medium instead of the emptiness of space. That was our first contact with the human remnant. It did not take long for them to ping our communications, and our advanced translation algorithms began to work. Helped by them transmitting their own language to us in what was obviously a first contact package. The first proper conversation was uh, interesting, to say the least. A Hispanic human, bipedal like us, similar body shape, just twice our height and without a fur and muzzles, with skin that was tan, as the humans put it, named Scout Malkinson, was the first to speak. Wonderful! A proper and friendly first contact! He sighed in relief, leaning back in a strange chair with a visible thrust upon. Naturally, we were confused by this. What did he mean? As he spoke, the computers finished analyzing the warp jump signatures vector. It was from beyond our galaxy that gave us the first clue of what he meant. After a little bit more talking, we divulged that his race was fleeing their own galaxy. Fleeing their own galaxy. Through the infinite darkness between galaxies. Even in our 60 million earth years of void travel, such a thing was preposterous. Warp jumping is still too slow for crossing them, even to the closest one. It would take centuries, and there's not enough fuel in the world to keep the ship going. That's when the alarms began to blare about immense warp jump signatures approaching. Well, uh, They want to meet you now that the system is safe. Scout Malkinson smiled at us. Space, several thousand kilometers away, erupted in great golden flashes of light. An enormous cylindrical ship and a huge variety of other ship shapes of all kinds are disgorged into an area around our humble mining outpost. The entire collective was similar to that of the mineral-rich rings we were in orbit of and digging out. The second thing we noticed after getting over the sheer size and number of the thousands of vessels all in one place was the fact that every single one of them was armed in some fashion. The strange part though was how all of them appeared to be brand new despite Malkinson's claim of them travelling from their own home system to our galaxy taking five of their sentries. Such a thing had never been seen before, but the warp jump echoes claimed this was true. The only place they could have come from was outside of our galaxy. It didn't take long for the humans to give us the name that is easy for them to pronounce, Velid, due to looking similar to the mostly tamed predatory species they brought with them called felines. The news of a new species coming from beyond the galaxy did not take long to spread, and soon the other races in our coalition arrived, as well as a proper ambassadorial delegation. Our sleek white and orange vessels, built of hard light with floating fins for maneuverability, that are designed after the graceful movements and looks of the native fish of our homeworld, the Husa, with their white winged avian-looking vessels, and the Odanton with tail-reinforced crescent-shaped designs, all arrived and were invited aboard the human sculpture ships. It was clearly obvious that they were not completely united, the sheer number of ships' designs proved as much, but they were united enough to give every nation, colony and even sub-facets of their history, like the internet and video games and movies with the vessels that acts as museums as well as living space. Our coalition was welcomed them with open arms, giving them several systems in each of our spheres for where they could settle and rest after their journey, and for this Humanity was thankful and gladly shared the technologies that allowed them to create such structures as the culture shift, and to survive for long in space. Matter disassembly and reassembly, bio and, mind transfer, similar things had been experimented with or theorized, but no one in the coalition ever went far with them besides the Ardonton, due to their engineering prowess. But here, here we had working examples of each. Immortality was truly created, and by a race that hardly even begun expansion through space before they had to flee. They had been passing through the void for 500 years without FTL, and then basic FTL before making the first contact. Then 50 years later their flight began, until 500 years after that they arrived in our galaxy, what they named Andromeda. Several years passed. With human ships quickly becoming common throughout our space as their new dynasty treasure fleet eagerly goes and trades system by system. Mercenary groups are set up and still others go out by themselves to explore our cultures and we go to explore theirs. Then disaster struck. A human ship reactor went critical and sent it smashing into one of our habitats. Knocking it out of orbit and towards our artisan world below. The impact and devastation that was wrought was indescribable. An entire continent turned to rubble and twisted metal and fire and ash in an instant, with the impact setting off volcanic activity all over. It doesn't take long for the news to travel around the Coalition, and to the humans it took even less time for every cultural ship to appear over the skies, disgorging thousands of shuttles and humans to the ground rapidly, setting up shelters and search parties. Every ship sent down was quickly marked by some form of symbol colored red, and the most common being a red cross with the human letter H. Within an hour, we were sure 90% of every human space-faring vessel was surrounding our broken artisan world, flitting up and down from the ships in orbit with the injured, the homeless, the hungry. Naturally, we asked why the humans had sent so many ships. They replied, We were saved by the selflessness of a race who sent their last 12 living members out with technology and knowledge in search of people to save. When we arrived, you saved us from further time and space by gifting us worlds to start anew. Now, it is our turn to repay debt, to show our gratitude. When they finished, five rings of fire-bulching golden light appeared over our world, releasing five truly enormous vessels from a fiery maw. Each one with the same basic shape, but each one having its own uniqueness to the way the bridge and extensions are placed and shaped. Each one marked with one of the five most common red markings on the other ships that appeared. And each one with absolutely no weaponry. This is the beginning of the relief fleet, united under one goal, to help everyone, no matter race, religion or creed, get food, water, shelter, medicine. All you have to do is ask. The human ambassador smiles at everyone. And helps spread our debt of gratitude. End of story. Story number two. I Weep. Written by Dragonson04. I've had many names over the millennia. My children have called me Terra, Gaia, Mother Earth, Mother Nature, Tanatsun, How To, Joro and Geb, to name but a few. I weep for those times. Other children from another mother came and scarred me deeply. I did survive, but most of my children did not. They returned to me by the billions. I wept for their death. My surviving children, now numbering only a bare handful compared to what was, were changed. My environment was devastated, and, as is my law, the stronger survived and adapted. Although I should not have, I helped them change while they were open to it. I weep for what I did. Now my children are stronger, faster, and more cunning than ever before. A ship that sails the stars was abandoned by the other children and my children. Being my tool makers and being motivated by vengeance. Did what they've always done and made new ones based on the abandoned ones. I weep for they will leave me soon. Many things which were considered taboo are now commonplace. Many women bound to one man for population growth and to re-establish a sense of community and family. In 50 years they'll leave me. They are waiting for there to be enough of them. They take their rage, their passion, their desires and their sense of justice and they teach with them. They teach for the other children who hurt them. They indoctrinate from the time of child can walk. They teach their young to hate the enemy with each and every breath. Their training and population growth continues. They'll be ready soon. I weep for the lost innocence of my children. I weep, for I know what my children have done to each other since their beginning. I weep, for I know that will be nothing compared to what they will do to an enemy that is not human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1896 The Carbon Beast, written by D. Vessis. Hunched over his home study pond, squishy, green-faced forward. With concentration, Bolly tried his best to memorize the elemental body composition of the most recent species to have joined the Intergalactic Alliance. Like every young Lurvian specializing in medicine, it was his job to learn and fundamentally understand the biology of all members of the IGA. Lurvians, as a species, were especially well-suited to administering medical treatment. Statistics would agree. Of all the physicians selected to serve on deep-space missions since species-based discrimination had been outlawed, all but one had been Lurvian. The mission involving the single counterexample had ended in disaster, with less than 12% of the crew surviving. Should have had a Lurvian doctor on board. Bolly hoped to one day be remembered as the greatest physician of all time. He just wished that someone had warned him how boring the prerequisite biological chemistry course would be. Hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Hydrogen. Ugh, Bolly gurgled. He simply could not see the point in memorizing what was depicted on his glow pad, especially when it was so very clearly wrong. No matter how strange a species, there was no way in natural life form utilize carbon compounds for basic structural and metabolic functions. The idea was laughable. It was even written that the species used dihydrogen monoxide as a solvent within the body. That sounded like something pulled straight out of a science fiction night show. Perhaps these uh, humans were a prank thought up by the instructors, lost in thought and feeling peckish. Molly extended a pseudopod towards the emitter above his desk, turning its source style from solar to geothermal to satisfy his energy cravings. He simultaneously immersed a pseudopod in ammonia fountain behind him, taking a long sip of a flavorful liquid. A satisfied rumble spread throughout his body, causing ripples to spread across his skin. Ammonia always tasted best at home. After spending the better part of an hour mulling over the implications of carbon-based life, Bonnie came to a decision. He would no longer try to memorize the information, since there was the good chance it was flawed. He was not one to waste his time. His instructors were probably having a grand old time in the pleasure lounge, laughing and bonding over their little brank. Let them. Naturally, occurring carbon-based life was surely a joke, but it wasn't a completely unreasonable idea that he could artificially be created. Molly planned to have that last laugh. Powering down his globe hat and filling up a bottle with ammonia to go, he extended to his full height, a little over ten centimeters. He was tall for a Lurvian, and oozed over the edge of the study pod towards the portal leading above ground. He had somewhere to be, and that somewhere was the Xeno Biochemistry Lab at the Lurva Planetary Institute whether or not they actually existed, Bolly was going to create a human. Both sons had set by the time Bolly's travel pod arrived at the Institute's metro station. It had taken him a whole day of gliding around Leuvenian City to gather all the materials he needed. The six ingredients he drilled into his head earlier in the day had been surprisingly easy to acquire. He'd simply had to swing by the local space market to pick them up. The way the clerk had eyed him up for purchasing them all together, Molly had no doubt that his name would have been submitted to various watchlists for potential drug dealers. It didn't matter. What he was truly making, well, a whole lot stranger was not illegal to create. Humans, even if they were by some freak chance real, would have been too new to the IGA to be included in the list of universally protected species. There were several other ingredients Molly had acquired as well although their acquisition was more complicated. Various minerals required for the synthesis of the strange organism were legally restricted on Lulvo due to their toxicity and danger they posed to life on the planet. These materials included sulfur, potassium, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium. To acquire these materials, Bali needed to contact some old friends whose line of work was less than reputable, to say the least. These friends had not been able to provide some additional trace elements, however, at least not for a reasonable price. Having no other options, Barley had reluctantly poached the local alternatives they offered at a discount. Since the amounts needed were negligible, he reasoned the substitution wouldn't lead to any major issues down the line. The final ingredient required for the creation of a viable organism... A complete genetic template would have been next to impossible to obtain had Bolly been the average Lurvian citizen. Those sorts of materials were simply too dangerous to be allowed in the hands of the general public. Thankfully, he was a registered physician-in-training. All he had to do was download a few DNA files from the Earth's module of his virtual classroom. Every Lervian physician-in-training knew the importance of splicing multiple samples of DNA to create a new individual rather than a clone, and Bolly had been surprised to find several unique earth samples available for use. His instructors really had set up an elaborate prank. Displaying his student credentials to the portal at the entrance of the Xenobiology lab, Bolly nervously pulsed as the opaque disk before him slowly vanished to reveal the room beyond. No matter how many times he created a life form, the artistry of the whole procedure made his heart's race. Applying a protective coating to his body to shield against splashes, Molly quickly got to work. Gliding from bench to bench and working through the night, he used his raw materials to synthesize one compound after the other. The room glowed with the flickering light of the chemical reactions. Finally, once the materials had been suitably prepared, he made his way to the tool that would make all of his hard work pay off. Seeing it always took his breath away. It was the most beautiful work of engineering he had ever laid his eyes on, and the most advanced piece of machinery available to any Lervian physician. He could transfer a consciousness to a new body or create intelligent life from scratch. He could hardly believe that it was his to play with. Barley carefully decanted the materials into the central vat of the instrument and spiced the earth DNA samples to combine them. Uploading the now-combined Earth DNA into the instrument's computer, he took special care to adjust the settings so that his creation would come as close as possible to resembling the organism described in the textbook. He wished his teachers had made their description of a human a little more realistic. Taking 26 years of to reach full maturity was simply ridiculous. That was over 100 times longer than any natural Lervian lifespan. Nonetheless... He adjusted the specifications accordingly. It wasn't like he had to raise the thing himself. The machine-created organism would be created completely mature. Double-checking that all the settings were as desired and taking a deep breath, Barley initialized and activated the machine. He was promptly greeted by several warnings issued by the computer's robotic voice. Warning! Genetic scan indicates multi-species splice. Cancel operation if unexpected. Mor. Genetic scan indicates dimorphism may be exhibited by this organism. Database search provided genetic sample does not provide sufficient information to implement this feature. If you choose to proceed, dimorphism-related settings will be ignored. Created organism will be capable of independently producing offspring. Warning! Element is substitution detected. Unexpected materials detected in formulation VAT. If you choose to proceed, there may be unexpected results. Bonnie read the warnings, mentally processing each one. He had not been expecting the multi-species splice. Perhaps the genetic diversity of the humans was much greater than that of the other species in the universe, leading each individual to register as a unique species? There was no way a planet could support multiple species, especially when one was supposedly advanced enough to join the IGA. In any case, he couldn't cancel the operation, not when he was so close to success. The second warning was likely due to the first. It made sense that a database search for his combined Earth sample wouldn't return much information, especially if the machine incorrectly thought there had been multi-species splice. Regarding the lack of dimorphism and the ability of the created organism to independently produce offspring, Molly wasn't very concerned. Lurvians could choose their form and independently produce offspring as well, and it hadn't led to any issues so far. Perhaps the human wouldn't be very accurate when it came to physiology, but it would be close enough. The third warning was unfortunate, but both expected and unavoidable. He simply could not afford the remaining imported materials. Without a second thought, Bali activated the life-giving instruments, he would create a human, and in doing so would prove his instructors how ridiculous the claims were. The machine came to life with a hum, its arms moving faster and faster, From the vat, a shape began to emerge. When the procedure was complete, Bali was horrified by what he saw. The sleeping creature was colossal and did not at all look like the cute and cuddly illustration from the medical textbook. Every inch of its skin was covered by hard, crisscrossing scales, completely unlike the sparse fuzz he had expected. A thin membrane stretched between each of the clawed fingers, similar to some aquatic species known to the IgA. A thicker, downy membrane connected its disproportionately long arms to its torso and bore gills that were supported by thickly muscled, hooved legs. The pointed tips of the large ears twitched, seemingly picking up the racing drumbeat of Bolly's hearts. The textbook artist had clearly never seen a human, unless they had. A chilling thought touched Bolly's mind. Just because no planet has been known to sustain more than one species, it didn't mean that it was impossible. If Earth indeed was a home to multiple species, and he had combined multiple genetic samples when creating new life, he was in deep trouble. That sort of thing required specialized training due to the risks involved, and Barley wasn't licensed. He could even be kicked out of school for breaking the law. Perhaps he'd been hasty in ignoring and the warning about the multi-species splice. The life form was viable. Under galactic law, termination would lead him to spend the rest of his life mining helium in deep space prison. Bali's only option was to call a lab manager, effectively turning himself in. Then he would have to administer required childhood vaccines to monasteries and make arrangements to have a fully grown newborn chipped off to receive the government education it was entitled. Barley dejectedly meandered towards the communicator located at the opaque entrance portal. As he raised the upon to summon a lab manager, he decided to take one last look over his shoulder at its creation. What he saw made him freeze where he stood. The creature was crouched close to the ground, awake and taking in its surroundings. Even without standing, its head brushed the tall ceiling of the laboratory. Bolly whimpered in fear. He had seen how large the beast was when it was being created, of course, it had just looked a lot less menacing asleep. The creature's head snapped towards him blocking him in its all-too-alert gaze. Its yellow and black eyes were mesmerizing, almost making Bolly forget about the jagged fangs extending from its snout. Almost. Bolly let out a scream and fainted. When Bolly woke up and found himself in a meddy bubble, in what seemed to be a hospital ship, he was not alone. Hundreds of other Lurvians surrounded him in bubbles of their own, being treated for various injuries. Some were quite gruesome. Observing his reflection, he was surprised to find that he was a fifth of his former size. Oh, it's great that you're awake. A nurse smiled as she glided over to his medibubble. You were very lucky. We managed to grow you back from your one surviving heart. Bolly's face narrowed in confusion. One last thing he remembered was sitting in the study pod, reading about some strange alien. What, one su- surviving heart? What, what happened? Where am I? The nurse's face fell. "'You must have lost your short-term memory, Agonel,' she said, sadly. "'But perhaps it's for the best. "'It would be traumatic for you to relive what could have been easily your death.' "'Bolly furrowed his brow, trying his best to remember "'what could have happened after his study session. "'Had he gotten a pseudopod stuck in an ammonia fountain? "'He'd once read an article about that happening to someone, "'who'd then have to have the whole pseudopod amputated. "'But he would really have to misuse the ammonia fountain to get a pseudopod stuck.' Bali wasn't that sort of Lervian. and to lose four hearts, whatever happened had to have been much worse. "'To start, we're off-planet on a medevac ship,' the nurse paused, seemingly collecting her emotions. "'There's been a terrorist attack on the homeworld, the worst in history. "'We were hoping that you'd know something since you were at Ground Zero. "'But if your memories have been lost—' "'A terrorist attack on Lerva? Bali exclaimed. "'Why would anybody want to do something so terrible?' The only species allowed within Luvian space are our allies. The nurse nodded sadly. Turns out that our newest allies, the humans, weren't really our allies after all. It seems that they were just waiting for us to let them in so that they could strike at the heart of our civilization. The IGA thinks they deployed some sort of biological terror on Lerva. Our cities have been toppled, and those who lived there have been eaten. The planet is effectively uninhabitable for us now. Those you see around you, The only survivors. Why does the IGA think that it was the humans? Wally asked. In everything that I've read about them, they have been detected as a relatively peaceful species, unless provoked or enticed. Why would they want Lerva destroyed? Our people have never posed a threat to any others. The nurse sighed. The IGA hasn't deciphered the motives, but they are very sure humans are responsible for the attack. The creature that destroyed our planet is predominantly made up of carbon, A phenomenon only ever seen on Earth. Only humans would have the expertise to craft such a terribly effective weapon from such an unusual material. Besides, DNA extracted from the beast originates from their planet. It seems this thing is even part human. It's practically a closed case. Carbon-based, he mumbled. Something about that was uncomfortably familiar. Pushing away his unease, Barley forced himself to smile at the nurse. Please clear me for release from the medic bubble as soon as possible. While it appears my identification cube was lost in the accident, I'm a galactic physician in training and will assist you in caring for the other patients. The nurse chuckled. Physician in training or not, I need all the help I can get. I'll check your vitals and if your heart is stable, we'll release you within the hour. Barley felt his heart beat a little faster, an idea taking root in his mind. Thanks, he smiled. Genuinely this time... The bubble popped, and he was free. Before getting started, I'm going to need to ask for one last favor. Looking past the sea of injured Lurvians, he spoke to the nurse. I'm going to need a line of communication opened with the IGA's bio Warfare Division. I'm going to need access to the Xenochemistry Laboratory. I think I know how to strike back. As the communication channel opened and Barley stepped into the virtual meeting room, he was shocked to find himself in a room filled with the IGA's greatest Xenobiologists military strategists, and administrators. He couldn't help but feel his chest swell with pride. He hadn't expected to be taken so seriously. There was a chance his plan would be implemented, after all. Bolly's pride was replaced with shock and rage as he glimpsed at the images suspended on the large screens covering the walls of a once-beautiful Lova had been ravaged. Infrastructure had been reduced to bravel, national swamps and ponds contaminated. The carbon beast had single-handedly brought a mighty civilization to its knees. He was still there somewhere on the planet's surface, feasting on his people, poisoning the air. Collecting himself, Bonnie cleared his vocalization organelle of goo, addressing those gathered in the room. He spoke with more confidence than he felt. Lady forms and gentle forms, I come before you in the time of crisis. The humans betrayed our trust, extinguished billions of brilliant Lervian lives. "'and evicted us from our own planet.' "'The room was quiet. "'The attention of each occupant fixed on Bolly as he spoke. "'But you know that already. "'What you don't know is how to stop it.' "'Get on with it!' "'Someone shouted from the back of the room. "'They were quickly hushed, "'but it was obvious the others had shared the sentiment. "'The beast that roams our planet is unlike any that we have battled in the past,' "'Bolly roared. "'Neither it nor its creators play by any natural rules.' Our planet may be been lost, but we cannot give up. Carbon-based life is inherently unnatural, and its domination of the galaxy must be prevented. Unfortunately, we are not physically equipped to defeat such foes. Humans, if they are anything like their creation, are simply too powerful. Our only option is to fight fire with fire. "'What are you proposing?' a stern voice called from the crowd. Bali singled in on the voice, locking eyes with the Commander-in-Chief and the Intergalactic Alliance. This was his chance. The chance to arrive above his station. The chance to be remembered, not as the greatest physician of all time, but as a war hero. The savior of his people, more importantly. This was a chance for him to scratch the nagging itch in the back of his mind. The feverish curiosity that filled him, for whatever reason, whenever he thought about carbon-based life. The room had fallen silent at the question, Standing before the crowd of bigwigs, Molly spoke directly to the Commander-in-Chief. Humans and their creations may be unstoppable for now, due to their strange elemental composition. They may hunt us as prey and drive us from our homes. Our only way out of the pit we find ourselves in is to reset the ecosystem. Humans cannot be allowed to sit at the top of the food chain. We must take this fight to Earth. He took a breath, making sure the impact of his last statement would be felt. I propose we create our own carbon beast. Far below the IGA fleet, on the surface of Lova all was still. Silver towers that had once touched the sky lay broken and tarnished in the mud. Travel pods sat empty at their stations. A single living creature remained on the planet, its laboring breaths punctuated by shrill wails. It was a social animal left all alone. It was miserably lonely. The sad beast lay in a den it had made for itself, curled up to protect against the frigid wind blowing through the ruins of the Lervinian city. Eventually, the waning ceased, the labored breaths eased, and then stopped entirely. But life had not left Lerva. Six wrinkly pups nuzzled their parent, searching for milk even as the body cooled. Finding no succor and growing hungry, the pups eventually wandered off on their own to search for food. They would not return nor meet again until they were mature. As months turned to years, the pups grew in size and changed in form. They spread to every corner of Lervo, waiting for the day they could themselves usher the next generation of pups. The beasts were social creatures. They would make sure that they would never be alone again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1897. Story number one, The Flow of a Human. Written by Fiamma Galathon. Humans, oh, Javini, humans. I never thought something or someone could be so horrifyingly beautiful. I never thought that there could exist such a species. So weird, so creepy. Until I met our new crewmate. His papers said that he was a male specimen of average height and colorization. Considered adult, if still fairly young. The little photo attached showed his face, weirdly enough, more pink than blue or silver. Topped with a mop of brown. Fur, I guess. But well, never judge a killkeeper by its shell. I was fairly certain I could spot him with the thin crowd in the docks. Especially that it seemed fairly uniformly how and these little furry merchants are... Well, little. After a moment, I spotted a big, weirdly smooth figure approaching in roughly my direction from the station buildings. Oh, Javuni, fingers! He's big. How will we fit him into the dolls of the bath pool? The human, yes. I was certain it was him, stopped awkwardly right before me, so I needed to look up to see his face. Weird! Oh, yeah, nope, not, not looking there. I needed to quickly avert my gaze because his eyes were so fecking blue. It physically hurt to look at him. Rubbing my eyes with one paw, I cleared my throat and let the translator interpret my words. Hi, I take it that you are the human Jasper, assigned to the vessel Lurgunder. The device sputtered for a moment and word to life. The words that escaped it were so smooth, I never heard something that smooth. The name of my ship sounded so harsh against the nearly musical language that the translator produced. The face of the human changed shape, like it was made of slime. And he responded in kind, voice nearly hypnotic. Yep, I'm Jasper. Nice to meet you. The lay of the machine made me nearly go crazy. I only now noticed the way his skin seemed to flow, his movements making the bulge and change shape. And yet, every change looked carefully harmonic, like... It was meant to happen. The human was creepy. Nice to meet you. I am Clorosec. You can call me Sec. I gave him a short bow, my tail crunching against my back, as etiquette dictated. Jasper flashed his disconcertingly white teeth at me and copied the gesture, though he liked a tail. My mind screeched at me. The gesture was should be familiar. Any other species never bothered in learning it, but it was a gesture of goodwill. Jasper, hurt to look at. His body moved so smoothly, too, seamlessly, like he was made of water instead of flesh. My brain started to genuinely itch. And then I made the worst mistake I possibly could. I looked him straight in the eyes. Too round, dark, then the center of the dark spot surrounded the blue of the abyss, the blue that even copper salt couldn't reach, layered and convoluted. In the middle of a white sclera that had little red lines zigzagging through it. Firm and steely, hypnotizing and flowing, whispering to me. "'Zek, a nice name,' Jesma smiled. That wasn't a smile. That couldn't be a smile. No one could stretch it so far. At me crouching down. I hope our work together will be long and pleasant. He stretched one of his appendages in my direction, something that I recognized as a handshake. I hesitantly moved my paw, completely unable to look away from his eyes. Looking hurt, but not looking was certainly hurt more. His five end digits wrapped themselves around my paw, firm, strong, and hard, yet so, so soft and pulsating slightly in the same rhythm that this one dark line on his neck was. I nearly blacked out. It was so wrong, so weird, so beautiful. Jasper was the worst nightmare I've ever encountered, and yet he was beautiful in a way that no one, not even I, could understand. End of story. Story number two. The interrogation written by Weijin Warrior. Edgogo Calambo looked around the compartment for the nth time, ineffectively straining against his restraints. The room was all but bare. Beyond a table, a chair for the human and a hastily constructed sitting platform for him. There was just a row of cabinets against the far wall of the compartment. Each latched door held. To gogo was sure. Unspeakable horrors. Implemented to make him talk. Implements to bring him pain. Implements that he was physically trained and mentally conditioned to resist. So far, all that had happened was that a human had come in, inclined its head at him, and then sat down across the table. It was seemingly engrossed in a series of thin white sheets, fastened, to each other along one edge. The human would stare at them for a while, then slowly turn one over and stare on the newly revealed surfaces. Tagogo Kalambo's minds were orbiting each other, hardly together for comfort. He wanted the searing pain to start. He longed for the dull ache. He prayed for the sound of his endoskeleton being broken. But all that happened was that the human across the table, carefully, turned one of the white sheets over. He strained against his restraints again, trying to contemplate what was in the cabinets. His species would have organized them so the least painful implements would be on the less dominant side, and each latch would give access to devices designed to cause more and more pain. The Glabians, he knew, would keep the vat of niac acid and the center cabinet. Applied to the dermal layer, it would melt away the hide muscle and even the bone underneath. The shapeless ones would have no rhyme or reason to how their storage was organized, but would have opened cabinets seemingly at random and used what they found within with gusto and cackling delight. Terran's might... Uh, Terran's might... might, uh, turn over one of the white sheets again, seemingly oblivious even to his presence. Today I go strained himself again and again. These restraints were as fast as they had been for a, for, for a long time. But straining until his very soul hurt was all that he could do. He could hear his very bones creak under the strain. But the human, the, the human did not even look at him. Hadn't looked at him since he sat down and started looking at the collection of white sheets. How long had it been? Tadago felt his mind slip away as he tried to recall. There was hunger, but that had been there when he was escorted to this compartment and restrained. There was the urge to seek his sleep pod, but he had been craving rest from before this human had entered the compartment. The human turned over one of the thin sheets again. Beyond that, the only movement was his eyes moving back and forth as the human stared at the collection of white sheets. Tadago flicked his own eyes over to the row of cabinets again. Why, wasn't his visceral fluid pooling on the floor? Was the human waiting for others of its kind to join in, like the frenzied Fercut interrogation meal mating feast? Or would it be the slow rituals of the Ustuses, where each piece of Titicago Kalambo would be passed from hand to hand? Was that noise from inside one of the cabinets or was his senses dull to the point where his minds made things up? One of his minds had gone dark, he noticed. The two others huddled closer together. He was, to Dago, realized with some shock, afraid. Human, he said in a halting interlingua. The human did not look up, but carefully took out a small flat rectangle and placed it between the white sheets before closing the stack. Human! Tadago repeated. I will divulge everything. I just ask. Just ask. The human carefully placed a stack of thin white sheets on the table. A small part of Tadago's remaining minds noticed that the ends were covered by heavier, rectangle pieces of matter. Yes? The human voice was clipped, controlled, in control. Tadago swallowed. I beg thee, I will tell everything. You do not open th- those cabinets. I have no need for what is in them now. I trust I will not have need for them in the immediate future. Is that a sufficient assurance? Tadago tried to concentrate, but found his eyes and minds drawn towards the rows of cabinets. They seemed to grow larger as he stared at them. It w- will do. Very well. I can finish reading my book later. Now, your designation, we are given to understand, is Tadago Kalalambo. Tadago felt his mind's cluster around the question, unsure of the validity of the answer, even as he opened his mouth. Yes. And just like that, Tadago told the humans everything he knew. And when he was done, the human opened one of the cabinets and gave him a standard multi-species ration pack and a water bulb. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1898 Before the Humans, written by Prussian Joe I walk with the sun, as I always do I ate a meal that has been perfectly balanced to my needs I leave home that is sized to fulfill only my basic requirements for living Because that is all I need I go for a walk to meet my daily exercise quota For if I do not, my body will not be in perfect condition My people are a race of perfection That's how it used to be, anyways, before the humans. Minus 114.3 orbital periods ago, minus 201.7 human years. To a human, the bridge of the unnamed ship would have seemed eerily quiet. Members of the people, as they are often called, manned their stations and transmitted data to each other via neural uplinks attached directly into each individual's brain. Information flowed from station to station, individual to individual, at speeds incomprehensible to most forms of life. However, the people were unlike most forms of life. They were a silica-based species, and their processing centers evolved into crystalline structures that handled data at speeds faster than most human quantum computers. And their technology had been built to enhance that even more. Within a microsecond of entering the system, the vessel began its preliminary scans. Within 10 microseconds, the advanced sensors had received a full image of the system, and within 4 microseconds of that, it was determined that there were radio and even FTL signals coming from the system's second planet. Closer inspection found something quite rare, carbon-based life. The planet was one of continents covered in green plants bordered by vivid blue oceans. And in orbit sat 18 metallic objects that the people quickly recognized as satellites. Signals were intercepted, languages decoded, and information was searched out. In less than a minute the entire satellite network, and by extension the planet's own information network, had been infiltrated, downloaded, and analyzed. Yes. There was life here, but it was of a kind the people had deemed irrelevant, wasteful, and unnecessary. The information was sent to every leader, every scientist, and every individual who had any say in the matters such as this. The answer was both instantaneous and unanimous. Follow standard procedure. Don't deviate from the status quo. In the blink of an eye, an enormous vessel was in orbit over the unnamed world inhabited by a species that... The people would simply refer to by the numeric indicator, regardless of what the information received from the satellite system said. However, not all the people of the ship were in agreement. Everyone processed it, and nearly as soon as it was received, most saw what their leaders saw. Waste. Yet others saw more. They saw intelligence, regardless of what their leaders told them about carbon-based life. There was a creation here, history, other worlds held by the things called humans. These individuals kept their thoughts to themselves for the good of the people must come first, and humanity's fate had been decided. Mere seconds after entering planetary orbit, the vessel was assaulted with signals from the world below. Those of the people who saw more than nothing in this thing called humanity listened and learned their first lesson from the beings below. Humanity's first lesson to the people was compassion. Even as the vessel's enormous plasma arrays charged to begin cleansing the world, there came messages of peace and welcome. The world's leaders asked to communicate. Its people asked to learn. And even though there was some panic and fear, and even the occasional proclamation that God had arrived, humans looked to the heavens with open arms of welcome. The ship sat in orbit, charging its weapons and receiving every message sent to it. The people listened, understood, and for the most part dismissed it all. Ten minutes passed like this, and the vessel waited. Then a signal began to transmit to one of the satellites, meant to be aimed out a system to another world that the humans' data said contained still more humans. The signal had not even been fully received by the satellite when the vessel's smaller laser array fired 18 times. One shot reached satellite. And just like that, the messages stopped. For a moment, there was a silence as humanity realized what had happened. Then everything began anew. Pleas for mercy, calls for peace, and the thousands of other messages bombarded the vessel. It received them in silence. Then the plasma arrays finished their charge cycle, and the command to fire was given. A full quarter of the world burned in the first blast, and the messages changed. Humanity's second lesson to the people was agony. It took 1.4 human hours to glass the planet. A notation was made in the people's star charts, marking the world's clean. Then, just as suddenly as the vessel arrived, it left. The human state had told the people much. It told them that humanity controlled seven worlds, including their home planet. It told the people that humans had yet to gain FTL travel for their ships, although they had mastered it for a transfer of signals and information some time ago. This meant that when the vessel appeared at the nearest human world, they were completely unaware that hours ago the same vessel had destroyed an entire colony of species. This would be no different. The vessel appeared in orbit, charged its plasma arrays, and received thousands upon thousands of flashes of information. As soon as the planet attempted to send a signal out of the system, the satellites were destroyed. As the people begged for their safety, weapons still charged, And as the planet burned under the vessel's sustained plasma discharge, the screams of millions echoed in the minds of those few of the people who did not agree with the consensus. As the planet burned, one signal escaped. A last-ditch effort to warn those other worlds of oncoming threat. The people cared not. The next human world met them with missiles, lasers, and primitive plasma bursts instead of messages of peace. The vessel's shields prevented any damage, and within hours another world was left behind, blackened and smoldering. Humanity's third lesson to the people was resistance. As each human world fell, as the vessel neared humanity's home, more of the people became disillusioned with the directive. What... If they are truly intelligent, what if their leaders were wrong? What if this new species is actually like us? Questions flashed through the people's neural network like lightning, and while some were swayed into this new line of thought, most agreed the human worlds needed to be cleansed. Six worlds had burned, and only the planet called Earth remained, with each world descent within the people grew. And with humanity's final world, there was strife. The people were divided as they had never been before. The messages of humanity were played over and over between the people, and calls to halt the destruction were made. But the people had always needed consensus, and so the vessel charged its weapons as it orbited Earth. It ignored the cries of fear, just as it had had for every world before. It shrugged off the weapons that were fired. And it waited. As the earth burned and as humanity was snuffed out from the universe, a new consensus was reached. The people mourned the loss of a species like themselves that they will never again meet. And humanity's final lesson to the people was shame. Present day, society changed practically overnight. The new consensus saw the creation of behavior within the people that had never before been observed. The vast amounts of data recovered from the humans was analyzed again and again by every mind in the network, and the people began to truly understand what they had lost. Now, things were different. I woke with the sun as I always do. I ate a meal that I enjoyed, even if it's not perfectly balanced. I leave my home that is built to provide me comfort and peace, as much as it is made for to ensure my survival. I go for a walk, not because I must, but because I want to. As I walk through the park filled with plants of a thousand varieties and colors, I recall the perfect efficiency of the past. The people once cared for nothing but progression, improvement, and perfection. We once believed that if it was not useful to us, it was not needed. We once thought that we knew how things were meant to be. That's how we used to be anyways. Before the humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1899. Story number one. Terror is not a health food. Written by Jimmy Agent 007. We stopped listening to the news unless it was telling us about the latest attack. The galactic community was suffering under the onslaught of an enemy that we had no answer for. It didn't matter what the races were doing, who was making first contact, or what inventions were discovered. We all lived in fear of the next attack. We all listened about how worlds solely went silent in screams of terror from the unstoppable enemy. There were always acts of hysteria, of panic, of those breaking under fear and anticipation. Even before the enemy arrived. It made others think the enemy had arrived sooner than it really did. As if the enemy wouldn't attack unless the world was already at a fever pitch of terror. Some said our worlds would be passed over if we stopped being afraid. But we were being hunted by a predator race we didn't understand. Fear had always kept us alive until now. It was during a panic with everyone running in all directions since there was no source of danger all safety to reach, that I saw them for the first time. It looked like a skeletal blob of one of the reptilian races that worked in our deserts. It had my old school teacher cornered in the market, frozen in fear as the glowing creature floated through the air at him. I could see through it almost as it slammed into my teacher. It carried on through his body and the wall behind him. It left a strange substance of both. As my teacher died, and slumped to the ground. The slime started to swell and glow as the deformed mockery of my teacher rose from its body. More of the terror aliens were flying through the air, screaming wildly after fleeing. And I knew that it was only a matter of time before they noticed me. Perhaps it was because I froze in terror before one noticed me that spared me long enough to witness the horrors of others dying. Only for more of the enemies to rise from the slime of the dead. I hadn't even noticed the wailing of the sirens until they were almost right beside me. A heavy white vehicle was driving down the street and stopped in front of me. I didn't recognize it as anything made by my people or any other I knew of. There were scorch marks suggesting that it survived atmospheric entry without energy shields. The only icon I could see was a white blob with a face as if one tried to make an enemy unthreatening, with a bold red circle around, with a line over it, as if it was trapped behind the sign. The doors open, and four robust beings step out, almost unconcerned regarding the flying terrors around them. They pulled strange heavy devices out from the back of the vehicle, and wore them on their backs, holding connected devices in their hands. A powerful hum of energy came from each as they powered on. The anticipation of the confusion over what they were doing almost made me forget my fear for a moment. Then, in the bright flashes of light, they attacked the flying enemies. Powerful ropes of energy were projected from their tools and ensnared the enemies. They struggled and screamed for the first time, sounding as if they finally knew fear for themselves. What beings could inflict fear on those who fed on it to survive? Small boxes were being rolled along the ground to get under the ensnared enemies and triggered it to open a funnel village that, as they were let go, the enemies were sucked in and gone. More and more came after the new aliens, and all met the same fate. In the distance, I could hear the tools being used as others clearly came to rescue the city. However... Owl Street had gone quiet. The enemies were gone. Suddenly, one burst through the wall and struck one of the aliens, who only had time to turn before being hit and falling to the ground. As his compatriots went over to his straggler, the alien simply got up, spat out the slime, and shook his head. Then helped his team finish off the one that got him. Only once they were sure that they were safe did they notice me watching. The one still covered in slime came over to me and asked if I was all right. I simply mumbled noises at him. He helped me to my feet and asked again if I was all right. I couldn't even think of myself after what I'd just seen. How did you survive? How, how did the terror not kill you? He smiled wildly. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. End of story. Story number two. Friend slash Human Encounters, written by Gray Wolfen. The human walked slowly towards the alien, hands upraised and palms facing outward. The alien resembled a praying mantis with an extra pair of limbs between its massive, pincer-like arms. It stood over three meters tall, but was incredibly slender and delicate-looking. Hey there, um, well, uh, seeing as both of us uh, are here on this planet, I don't think our respective governments screwed up. You're the Thren, right? Didn't realize you boys were so big. Each translator buzzed and clicked, converting the words to the Thren language as best as it could. The Agelian's translator spoke, a robotic voice with little inflection. I am Thren. My name is untranslatable. Nice speak for the Hive. We were informed this world was unclaimed by any sentient. Yep, same here. Did a little research on you boys. Seems like you got hot human jungles. I figured you had your pick of where to settle. Same as us. Well, turns out we each like areas that the other hates. Us humans can't live in those jungles very easily, and you fellas can't handle the cold and dryness of the grasslands and plains. So, the way I figure it, we each keep to our own territory, and maybe do some horse trading sometime. We shall agree to the division of the planet. It seems acceptable to both. However, I am unsure what a horse is, or whether the Hive leaders will agree to trade of one. Sorry, metaphor. Maybe we can find things to exchange with each other. This would be most acceptable to the hive. So began one of the more unusual but profitable arrangements in the subsector. Missive to Hive Leaders. Xeno Department regarding the species known as humans from Administrator Ambassador Mizek. The humans are unusual. There is little data about their homeworld, nor why they have colonized Trax 3. We have made contact and have developed a peace agreement. I've seen no evidence in the supposed hostility or aggressions humans have been noted for. Perhaps this is an offshoot or a divergent hive-slash-clan. To begin, the humans resemble nothing so much as a newly hatched youngling before their first molt. They are soft with an endoskeleton, a single mouthpart, and wet eyes. They are quad bipeds. They have only two manipulator limbs and have sacrificed precision for strength. Their innate curiosity and vocal sounds only increase the resemblance to younglings. However, given the fact that they are on average only 2 meters, half the height of a thren, they easily mass anywhere from 2 to 3 times as much. They are incredibly dense and muscled. I will continue updates as I interact with them more. Update. The humans are using the grasslands to raise meat beasts known as cow or cattle. A hoofed quadruped massing approximately 500 kilos. This was the main income of the settlers on their homeworld. The name of their primary city, Single Star, is named after the hive lands on the homeworld. I've begun a regular communication with one of the assistant administrators called Nod. Nod has begun to call me Buzz, as that is the closest he can get to my actual name. Hey, Buzz! I know you're trying to understand humans more. We're having a major celebration coming up, and uh, you and uh, any of your high mates are welcome to come. Just let us know so that we can know how big the place to set up for you. Aye, thank you, Nod. I will attend, but will attend alone. What is the name of the purpose of the celebration? It's the end of the season rodeo and barbecue. You boys do eat some meat, right? The purpose? Well, well the rodeo is how we celebrate the end of the season, and the barbecue is a feast. Yes, we occasionally consume flesh. I would be most pleased to attend your uh, rodeo and uh, barbecue. End of story. Story number three. One Human, written by Teller of Tall Tales. Tornon led his troops through the bombed out city. The human rebels weren't dishonorable fighters, but by the gods were they persistent and clever. Seeing a lone human step out from behind some rubble, he held up a claw, stopping his men. The human shouted at them, I bet one human is better than ten Dobian soldiers before darting back behind the rubble. Tornan glanced at his men. He could see they were itching for a fight. Ten of his men had already stepped forward, blades and blasters drawn. He gave them a nod, and the men pushed forward, disappearing behind the rubble. The next few minutes were a cacophony of ringing metal, squealing blaster shots and whizzing kinetic projectiles, until the human from before popped out from behind the rubble, looking no worse for wear as he shouted, I bet one human as good as a hundred Dobians, before disappearing behind the rubble again. Tornan gave the nod to his men, and a hundred broke off, drawing their blades and blasters as they slipped behind the rubble. He still had about a thousand left. The fight lasted a long singular hour, before it finally went quiet again. The human once again popped out from behind the rubble, no worse for wear, as he shouted his challenge again. I bet one human is as good as a thousand Dobians. He stepped behind the rubble again. Tornan was getting tired of this game, but his men were salivating at the prospect of beating such a good fighter. He let them march forward from behind the rubble. The noise of battle lasted hours. Then, as the sun began to set, Dobian ran out of from behind the rubble, screaming and shouting, There's more of him! There's more of him! The soldier ran past Tornan leaving the general incredibly confused, until he turned to look back at the rubble, jaw-dropping. At least a hundred humans were stepping out from behind the rubble, bow. Humans might not be the right word. There were hundreds of copies of the exact same human marching towards him, the most battered and bruised in the front. When they reached the stunned Obian general, the one in the lead laughed softly. The others echoed it creepily. Pretty cool what you can do with a cloning tank without a rate limiter, right? Tornan couldn't even be mad. The human had told the truth when he said one human is worth a thousand Dobians. Technically. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1900 Necessary Evil, written by Glacial Fury There is a darkness that lurks within us all. A swirling mat that dwells within the twilight recesses of our subconscious mind. For most, this darkness never stirs. But sometimes, something horrific happens and fractures our mind and the darkness cracks open its eyes and rises to the form Seamus lit a smoke and watched the silky coils rise and twist towards the ceiling. The Iron Maiden, a dive bar out in the barrens, surged with rowdy gangers this evening. More so, than usual. He quaffed a shot of vodka, one of half a dozen lined up on the bar in front of him, and ran a careful eye over the swelling crowd of drunks. Actually, now that he thought about it, the Iron Maiden stayed pretty busy all of the time, especially after dusk when all of the miscreants came out to play. Their mugs crashed together, foamy beer sloshing all about. They raised their fists to the ceiling and roared with delight capering in a circle, before smashing them together again. A few of them hopped up on the tables and raised their glasses high, belting out the slurred lyrics to No Good Badges, before tumbling back to the beer-stained floor. They were loud, obnoxious, even wasteful, but they were relatively harmless, and they were having a good time. Seamus also recognized a few of them from the time he spent here at the Maiden Regulars that frequented the establishment for its cheap booze and quality stacks, amongst other things. The rest were just blurred sketches passing in the night. Some were vacant-eyed tweakers, addicts hooked on the stacks peddled by local dealers from the bars and stack shops here in the Barrens. Look hard enough, and one could find just about anything they might desire out here for the right price. The recent influx to the barons came as no surprise to Seamus. The badgers were no longer patrolling the barons. No more rules out here, no law. Just organized chaos and survival of the fittest. Seamus took a drag on his smoke and laughed. The badgers never gave a crap about what goes on out here anyway. He thought with disgust and laughed again. Nobody does. Hell. Half of the drug cartels from the cities to the barons were supplied by the badges. They fancied themselves kings of the barons, but were nothing more than gangsters with badges as far as shapes was concerned. No better. No better at all, he mumbled aloud, slowly running his finger around the gold-plated rim of an empty shot glass. Fact is, he laughed bitterly, they're just as bad. Seamus glanced over his shoulder at the mob of tattooed gangers and tweakers grinding in the bar's smoky gloom and shook his head. No, he decided after a moment, the badgers were worse. Corrupt, dangerous men who sold their souls to greed and treachery, abused the power the people entrusted them with for personal gain while turning their backs on the oaths they swore and the innocence they were there to protect. And for what? More credits, they were the most despicable kind of human beings in the eyes of Seamus. He frowned at his hands, clenched into fists so tight that his wrists began to ache. He blinked, blinked again, and consciously relaxed his trembling hands. As bad as the badges were, they didn't discount the fact that the gangers and stackers were the dregs of society. Weak parasites. Their feeble minds were unable to cope with the realities of life, so they turned to Stats for an escape. There was something darker out there, a shadow stalking the night. Seamus laughed and drained another shot. All of these arseholes would probably end up drooding stack-induced coma anyway. Their emaciated frames too weak to fight off the Razor dock who scoops them up and cart them off to be parted out. Their miserable existence would end on a cold metal slab, soaked in their own urine as a chopped dock dug for their organs. A cruel fate was sure, but one they earned all by themselves. Seamus shifted his gaze to the lasers and flashing lights of the dance floor and squinted against the glare. The crowd had begun feverishly grinding and thrusting and sweating all over each other, an obscene display of chemically driven irreverence. They didn't care who witnessed their writhing and twisting and moaning under the soft neon glow. They didn't care about anything at all, except their next stack. Something he would never understand. Seamus mentally waved this aside. He was here for something far more critical than personal gratification. Something that couldn't be bought with a cred stick. He remembered when it first came over him. The night he opened his eyes and a strange sort of temporary madness had taken a hold and driven him to seek a darker side of the sprawl. And when he found it, he knew what had to be done. He knew its purpose. How are we doing over there? A gruff voice cut into his dark music. Shrieking sped metal hammering out of the club's sound system. Seamus regarded the owner of the voice, a grizzled old man named Skylar with the gleaming cybernetic arm resting on the other side of the bar, staring at him, with one eye not covered with a blood-stained patch. Another round, Seamus answered, his impatient stare with a quick gesture of the empty shot glasses. Pull them all! Old Man Skylar grunted, his single eye glittering in the bar's recessed lighting, then nodded and reached for the vodka. Seamus took a drag of his smoke and used the mirror behind the Old Man Skylar, to keep track of his target. Aaron Gareth, a corporate slug by day, depraved serial killer by night, lounged in a private booth from where Seamus sat hunched at the bar. Tonight, he sat across from an attractive, dark-skinned femme, wearing painted on synth leather shorts and a pinkish, semi-translucent razor shirt that strained against the augmented breasts. She twisted a finger in her curly hair shyly and her scarlet lips ghosted a smile that gleamed brightly. She was his next victim. A bottle clunked heavily on the bar in front of Shakespeare, and the soft lug of vodka filling his shot glasses followed. He shook his head, downed another shot. Fuck it, thought, and turned his attention back to the dance floor, fired up another cigarette, and blew a stream of smoke at the ceiling. Aaron Gareth would make his move soon. Patience was crucial for Seamus. He drained another shot and slammed the glass down on the bar with a hiss. He was reaching for another when Aaron Gareth abruptly stood up, tossed a credit stick on the table and offered his arm to Miss Mohawk and hurriedly led her out of the bar. Seamus felt his pulse quicken. It was time. He waited a moment before sliding off his stool to follow. Heavy rain pounded into the asphalt with unmatched fury, and his breath came in thick jets of steam that fountained from his nose and mouth. Lightning flashed bright enough to sting his eyes, and the crash of thunder that followed rattled his teeth. The night was cold, dark, miserable. Visibility was low, just a few feet. The only source of light, a flickering neon sign, bolted to the bar's metal roof. Seamus watched Aaron Gareth and his date disappear around a corner at the end of the block and followed. Lightning flared again, burning all colour out of the sky. The rain further intensified, pounding through his jacket and shirt, causing the already uncomfortable armor weave to cling to his shoulders and back. But he was too focused on Aaron Gareth, who climbed into his import, unspared off, to notice. Seamus splashed over his car and followed them into the night. The serial killer led Seamus on a tour through sprawling industrial districts and smaller, well-kept residential neighborhoods before crossing over to a superhighway and turning into a recently finished superplex, catering to the world to do, where he stopped next to an armored guard shack. He briefly spoke with one of the guards, who threw his head back and laughed, clapping Aaron Gareth on the shoulder. A moment later, the gate swung open, and the red glow of Gareth's taillights disappeared into the superplex. Seamus put on his best cop face and pulled around the guard shack to work its magic. A short, stocky security guard, wearing body armor and tactical pants, regarded him curiously. Can I help you, sir? The guard asked with a calm indifference, clearly uncertain of what level of respect Seamus deserved. This is a gated community, and I see that you do not have a guest pass on your windshield, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to turn around and leave. Seamus gripped his Predator 4 auto-pistol behind the car door, where the guard couldn't see it, and flashed a golden badge that gleamed in the guard shack's bloodlines. The guard's eyebrows rose slightly. My apologies, sir, he stammered with surprise. I wasn't expecting a marshal this evening. Seamus allowed himself a ghost of a smile. Not a problem. He replied to the guard, glancing at his nameplate. Officer Dietz. Officer Dietz puffed up his chest slightly when he heard those words. Officer was a title generally reserved for the real badges. Wannabes, Seamus hid his disgust behind a friendly mask. They were all the same, easily manipulated. I do apologize, Marshal Thomas. Officer Dietz spawned all over Seamus, mushing his thumb down on the gate control button. Enjoy your visit. Well, Seamus thought, a little ego boost, a borrowed badge, and he was walking right in. No muss, no fuss. Thanks, Hull. Seamus glanced up at the soaring superplex towers, piercing the stormy sky as he walked towards the building's entrance. Chains of lightning crackled around their distant antennas, like some Tesla experiment gone wrong. The resident directory pointed him to the fifth floor. Convenient. Seamus made his way over to the elevator lobby and whistled softly while he waited. During the ride-up, his anticipation heightened. Adrenaline scorched his veins. His pistol was light in his grip. The elevator door slid silently open, and Seamus stepped into the long corridor covered with a deep red carpet. Blood red, he thought grimly, and a series of polished wood doors that ran the length of the hallway. Old school doorknobs glinted silver in the overhead light. Seamus, one of the glowing numbers stamped onto each door's surface, all the way to Aaron Garrett's apartment. The muffled sounds of the struggle emanated from inside. Modern technology was so marvelous. Why bother with a bunch of silly keys when you could just tap a maglock passkey on a door and proof-click instant access? Indeed, how wonderful for Seamus, who had just happened to have in his possession a level 5 maglock passkey. Brilliant. He waved the mag stick over the door's security plate, and the glowing light flicked from red to green with a soft click, and Seamus was inside. Once inside, he saw signs of a struggle. Tables overturned, pictures crooked on the walls, shattered glass strewn about on the floor, and by the sounds coming from the back of the apartment, Mohawk was still putting up one hell of a fight. Seamus crept through the apartment, pistol held low in a tactical grip, stepping over a trail of debris and overturned furniture. Several muffled thumbs, followed by the sound of a body hitting the floor, echoed from the back room. He edged up to the bedroom door, which was still slightly cracked, and heard a strangled cry from the other side. He eased the door open with his pistol and saw Aaron Gareth straddling the now blue-faced Miss Mohawk, whom he'd pinned to the floor with a rope wrapped tightly around her neck. Seamus didn't say a word, just kicked the son of a bitch in the teeth. Aeron Gareth grunted and released his hold on the cable and fell backwards, stunned. Never taking his eyes from Gareth, Seamus sunk down beside the woman and freed her from the deadly cable. Who the fuck are you? Aeron Gareth demanded, his bloody face twisted into a hideous mask of rage. He clearly didn't appreciate being interrupted. I'm going to fucking kill you. Do you know who I am? Seamus shot him in the dick. Aaron Gareth howled in agony and vomited down his shirt, clutching at his ruined groin. That was the first time Seamus had shot someone in the groin. The reaction was immensely gratifying. I'm the one who hunts the hunters, Seamus snarled, glancing over at the woman who had partially recovered and was staring at him wide-eyed. You've been doing this for a long time, Aeron Gareth, but that time is over. I paid my debt to society. Aaron Gareth gasped, ragged through his waves of agony. Blood calls from between his fingers. Who are you to judge me? Seamus shrugged and glanced back at the woman, her face ashen. You have nothing to fear from me. Seamus moved to the side of the bed where Aaron Gareth lay clutching at his groin, and frowned down at him for a long moment. Never saying a word, just staring. Finally, he sat down on the bed. I am their vengeance. His voice was low and ominous, like a rumbling of a distant storm. He stared at his pistol in much the same manner one would regard a loved one. The ones you left in shallow graves, with the ropes you used to strangle them, still wrapped around their necks. Aaron Gareth blinked at Seamus, then laughed. A hoarse, dry rattle. You mean you did all of this for a bunch of fetching dead wars? She screeched at Seamus. You are nothing. No one misses them. No one cares. I did the world a favor. Seamus snarled and shot him in both knees. Aaron Gareth screamed like no one Seamus had never heard before. The sound was absolutely appalling. He was considering battering the man into unconsciousness when he abruptly fainted. I am the vengeance, he continued after a moment, nudging Aeron Gareth awake with his boot. The gods forgave you. I didn't. Aeron Gareth's head lulled about uncontrollably, while foamy saliva dripped from his chin. I find you guilty, Aeron Gareth, Seamus said, his lips drawing back from his teeth. Guilty of assault, torture, and murder. Arongar's eyes fluttered open, and he summoned the strength to spit at Seamus. Thank you! He rasped with an evil grin, his face stark white. They are mine! I own them! <laughs> his ghostly face laughed maniacally. They are mine forever! Seamus stood up. No, replied. You don't. And a smoking hole appeared between the serial killer's eyes. The thundering gunshot spread a grotesque fountain of blood and brains across the wall behind Aron Gareth, and his eyes rolled up into his head. Uh, are you going to kill me? A terrified voice quavered from across the room. Seamus blinked as if emerging from a fevered dream and turned towards the voice. I told you, he replied, turning to leave. You have nothing to fear from me. The woman sobbed uncontrollably. You're an angel. Seamus stopped abruptly. No, he said over his shoulder, from where he stood in the doorway. My daughter was the angel. Tears welled up in his eyes. I am the devil. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1901. Story number one. The Cloak, written by three ducks in a man suit. When my captain offered me the cloak, I knew it was an honor. The greatest I had ever received. Recognition of all I'd done for the clan. An honor and a curse. It was a beautiful item. Velvety black and so smooth to the touch that it was like laying your hands on silence itself. It fell over my shoulders as if I'd been born wearing it. It barely helped on the first mission I had with it. My image blended with the walls a little better. My footfalls came quieter. It was easier to avoid the target's guards. But most of all, it was still me. My years of training and talent in the ways of unseen movement. It was still me that slipped through the gaps in security on that quiet night and slit the target's throat. I didn't wear the cloak for the banquet the employer threw in honor after the successful mission. I was able to mingle freely with the guests, none of them knowing that it was me who had killed their enemy. I felt an anxiousness the whole time, an uneasy feeling in my gut I couldn't quite place. Academically, I knew the process had already started. The cloak was a curse. All it took was time. Within a month, putting it on made me all but invisible to the naked eye. I could walk without even trying to conceal my presence and not make a sound. There was a golden age, the sweet spot. A near-permanent slasher smile afflicted my face while I donned the cloak in those days. I was invincible, a silent phantom moving unseen and doing as I wished. It was also around that time I began to hear its voices. It whispered as if it was afraid to be heard. Secrets only for me that could not be shared with another. It became harder to take it off. Every time I disciplined my mind and lifted it from my shoulders, I felt naked. I was suddenly exposed to prying eyes. I was making noise that attracted attention. And I couldn't hear my cloak anymore. I just wanted to hear it again, calling my name, warning me to stay out of sight. I took to wearing it everywhere. It became a part of me, my permanent companion, my closest friend. They no longer noticed me at the clan meetings. I stayed in the corner like a specter, listening, but never contributing. If I spoke up, even when I had something to say, it would betray my presence. Unacceptable. I stopped reporting to my clan leaders. I would still visit them in their office. The cloak made it simple to drift through the walls, ignoring the security. Nothing could stop me from going where I wanted now. It was the law of the clan to report, to tell of success in your last mission and request your next. I would stand there, in my captain's briefing room, words itching at the edge of my mind that I dare not say. He never knew I was there. A brother or sister from the clan would enter and give a report, and I would wait calmly, grateful for the momentary excuse to be silent phantom the cloak wanted me to be. Then they would finish their business and leave. And I was standing there still, unmoving, silent, watching. I could no longer answer the questions or give them in the information I had scouted. It would reveal my presence unacceptable. My colleagues held a funeral for me. I was dead to them now. Once the cloak gets you, you become the ultimate master of stealth. Undetectable, unstoppable, and that unparalleled ability comes at a cost. I attended one was touched at the ceremony. It was beautiful. Men and women I had trained with for years spoke of my professionalism, my dedication. It was the last moment where I considered stepping forward and drawing attention to myself, just to say goodbye. The cloak told me not to. Its voice reminded me what it was like to feel eyes on me, to be in the spotlight. Unacceptable. I don't know if I can still talk, I don't know if I can still touch, but I don't want to know. The Cloak is my friend, the Cloak loves me. I will remains silent for the rest of my days. End of story. Story number two, The Containment Field, written by Boy. When we had cleared our interstellar roadway and escaped into the planets and distant stars, we were proud. When our untested United Flag of Nations solved the errors of countless dictatorships and brought unity, we were proud. When we expanded and explored, discovering countless other empires, we were proud. We dreamed of being powerful and being the terror of the galaxy, we were proud. When we escaped our side of the galaxy room and traveled to the Core Worlds, we were proud. When we mined away our gas giants and terraformed our planets in our home system, we were proud. But one day, on one far room in the galaxy, we found something horrifying. We thought ourselves and others maniacal and cruel. But what we found was devastating. Even to the most hardened of soldiers... A planet which had an atmosphere filled with nuclear ash. Hundreds of erupting volcanoes and incredibly dystopian governments. And ideologies that were twisted and burned with hate. Hundreds of explosions every day. And minds that twisted and turned downwards in search of any speck of uranium. So that they may cause another explosion against each other. Metal was mined and stripped down and constantly extracted. Bullets lodged into soldiers' bodies were removed and melted down for just a little more iron. The nuclear sirens blared constantly, only vaguely drowned out by the constant marching of soldiers. Filled the brim with fanaticism and hate against another of their own kind. The guns rarely grew cold. Their kinetic weapons were advanced and developed to the point that every time they fired, it felt that the earth below them groaned and cracked, entire cities built around massive artillery guns. The upper atmosphere was blocked off hundreds of satellites and probes, broken tools and mounted slag that zoomed at such speed. No ship could have left the planet without being torn apart, and in orbit, We detected a lot of undetonated nukes, hanging there, awaiting the command that would never come for it to explode. They had forgotten and buried their old past, and only knew destruction against their own. Under the ashes of bombs and trees under the rubble, they had forgotten why this all started. They forgot about their old glory before the war. We could not even find myths of all. They forgot the past, in its entirety. Their old cities destroyed and the old symbols burned. From a small probe orbiting a planet far away, we found out what their old name was. Humans. On the probe we found a message. We were bathed in nuclear fire, twisted by our hate. Please, leave us be. For we fear ourselves and our people that once they find out about any alien race, We would crawl out of our cradle planet and, no matter the cost, find you and claim this galaxy as our own. We might be weaker than you. We might be smarter than you. We might not even be comparable to you at all. But our rage, once focused and used, will bring death to you as it has to us. We left the system and closed it off to all. We made sure that none got in, and it remained that way. We built this place, a containment field that hampers all FTL drive, that attempts to exit or enter the system, in hopes that they don't leave. Please listen to our plea. This system contains a danger that will always exist until their star implodes, or they simply fade away to the void. This place does not conceal any weapon within the system, nor is it a holy sanctum. It is a containment field, so that no one enters, and they may not leave. To those who find this containment site, please understand. If these maniacs are let out, the final war shall occur. File found by Exploration Team F5 Jujuric from an active terminal in the control room of the ancient containment field. End of story. Story number three. Defiance, written by Terran Eclipse 3101. The Terran Alliance was on its last legs. The once mighty nation that had spanned countless star systems, that were protected by giant fleets of the largest and most powerful dreadnoughts and battleships ever designed, turned to debris and glass as they faced an unstoppable foe. The Galactic Concord was the galaxy's dominant superpower and had grown tired of Alliance's expansion and claimed of resource-rich systems and had thus launched a full-scale invasion. At first, the Terrans were slaughtering the fleets and armies of the Concord with an overwhelming firepower and numbers, but after each battle, the Terrans lost more and more. The Terrans may have been the biggest and strongest species in the galaxy, but they didn't have the resources or manpower of the much larger Concord. With every casualty the Concord suffered, ten more warriors or ships were ready to replace it. Wave after wave of warriors crashed onto the Terran lines, and wave after wave were massacred until the Terran's ammunition supplies ran dry and the planet's FTL lane they were fighting to defend fell, and the process was repeated over and over. The Terran Alliance's massive warships could destroy fleets single-handedly, but they were losing ships due to the overwhelming firepower and numbers faster than they could build new ones. Slowly, system by system, the Alliance was pushed back as their fighting capabilities dwindled until the Alliance pulled back to their home system to mount one final defense. every. Single-combat-ready ship from the smallest patrol ships to the largest dreadnoughts rallied around Sol and Earth as thousands upon thousands of Concord ships arrived just outside the system and sent one message. Surrender, the message said. Please, you have lost so much already. Lay down your arms and you will be treated fairly. The Terran sent one word in response. Never! And thus, the battle for Soul began. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1902 The Family Encounter, written by Lostborn Younglings, have I told you about when I met monsters? Jupel overheard his father start to tell his young brood. He leaned against the entryway to the brood hall. I've probably heard this tale a hundred times and it never ceases to pull me in. The air outside was crisp from the slight drop in temperature that came with dusk. The cool breeze pulled at him. Perhaps I should go out for a walk. These broodlings have all heard these monster stories before. It's pointless, though. bother is the only one who does them right, he thought as his father started to talk. I was on shore leave at the Federation station near to from the war with the Dulcatha. As you have all been told, at that point our council and the federation were allies against the Dulcatha incursion. Our vessel was being healed in the dock from the damage we sustained in the battle of Lodal. The elder Baidu started as he ran his hand through his crest. Jopal looked around at his bootlings. Vada has already pulled their full attention. They will not soon forget the story. I just hope they learn the important lesson from it. Now you must understand that we were celebrating life. We had taken a direct hit from the Delcatha plasma lance. The hole that had torn through our ship had killed a third of our crew and narrowly missed her heart. Had the Federation not allowed us to dock, we would have all perished. The elder bider continued as he dipped his beak into his string. The ship coming into dock caught our attention. It was a Federation ship, but not a design we had seen before. It lacked all the grace and organic lines of living, star-faring vessels that I knew of then. The sharp angles and unknown construction gave the vessel an ominous look before we realized the scale of damage it had sustained. His father paused, letting the broodling soak in his statement. They've always had a knack for ominous design. Jupal chuckled to himself. As the ship maneuvered into its heating bay, we could see clear through it in places. In others, we could see where plasma lancers had scarred that great hide. Watching that ship come into dock, he paused as his eyes glazed slightly in remembrance before he shook out his jowls and took a drink. It was darkly colored against the dark void, hard to make out. As I got closer, the amount and size of its weaponry were in awe-inspiring. I cannot convey the wrongness and ominousness of the ship. Among the living ships, it had to be the most fearsome I had ever seen. To this day, I cannot imagine how any creature could naturally be shaped into that dangerous creature we saw. We knew we shouldn't, but we had to run to the docking bay to get a glimpse of the creatures to live in such a monster. We were far from the only ones. Even as the ship docked, those of us in the bay watched in wonder as only the barest of docking equipment was used. No lines of cosmic radiation to sustain the beast were provided. It was merely secured. And when the ship opened its boarding port, the creatures that disembarked were just as frightening. The elder bider took a minute still lost in his thoughts as he took another drink. One of the broodlings broke his revive with the question. What are they? It squeaked. Japal watched his father chuckle, returning to his story. <laughs> they were humans! It was the first time I'd ever encountered them. From the murmur, Japal could tell the broodlings had been paying attention to their lessons. Amidst their matrix. he can make out all other names World Enders, Star Eaters, Machine Gods, and Beast Masters being amongst the most common. It is a shame how everyone had become aware of them, Jopal thought. Now, little ones, enough with the names, the elder bider said with more firmness in his voice and a slight gleam in his eyes. While humans have done much to earn those names, remember, they were never the aggressors. In all cases, some hit them first. They had ended this conflict after the bombing of one of their planets in a system they called Proxima Centauri. At this, the broodlings quieted back down, Chippal noted proudly. They are eager for the story to continue. I still remember father's tales of the later battles in the war where the humans would arrive with thousands of the ships against a few hundred of the Dulcather could field. None of us could fathom how they raised so many so quickly, space sparing ships take centuries to mature. Most attributed it to the human Dyson Sphere projects in the uninhabited systems in their control. It was well known by then that they could encapsulate and consume these lost stars while harvesting the material around them. The fact that they were creating intelligent life machines would have frightened us far more. These humans were amongst the first to join the war effort, you see, the Elder Bider continued breaking Chapel from his thoughts. Their exosuits were forged for ground combat, even on a space vessel, unlike our own crafted to protect us from the unforgiving void. More shocking than the beings, though, were what was with them. Both beast and machine followed those beings as they disembarked. In that first sight, I struggled to tell where one began and another ended. The elder bider was now leaning forward in his seat, holding entire brood's rapt attention. Chappelle's hand slipped to his thigh, rubbing a phantom itch. Humans utilize intelligent machines in a way few other races will ever comprehend, you see. When a bider like us loses and live, we are retired and count on our brood to take care of us. Humans, though, they come from what must be an unforgiving and cruel world. They graft machines on to keep going. They did this to their companions as well. Have you heard of the human creature known as a... K9. Most of the brood looked back in the elder biter in confusion. Chapau took in the crowd with the thought, Well, it appears the details of human war techniques are left out of most of the lessons. They know the human ground forces utilize beasts, but it appears they have not yet been shown the videos. Definitely a smart move. No one needs a nightmare of carnivores tearing apart human furs. It's far from the only companion the humans have. But I saw my first one there. It followed a human as though it was its sire. The old bider let her hang over the prude for a moment, basking in the strange looks. You see, humans view their companions as fellow beings, rather than beasts they utilize as we do. They almost can't help but view them as almost the same as themselves, despite how different they are. Uh, Sorry, my my mind wanders sometimes. The elder bider stated, shaking his chowls. As that first few disembarked, they seemed as struck by the collected council and federation species observing them as we were. The one in the front stopped and after a moment lifted his face shield. It was a shock to us all. The creature's face was almost flat, but its eyes, they stood out. At this point, the brood was completely silent. Jipal smiled. They are fully invested in the story. The creature's voice echoed across the bay as he raised one of the manipulators to wave it at us. The translator told us, We bid welcome and peace to our allies. But the words sounded like a primeval growl of a dangerous creature. At that moment, I feared our new allies. As they loaded the supplies that were waiting on them onto their ship, We all marveled as smaller creatures or machines, I'm not sure which, poured out of their ship and began making repairs. I've never seen another beast of the void heal as quickly as theirs did. Within a rotation, most of the holes were closed. May left within fourteen rotations, well ahead of us. The elder bider sat back on his haunches, taking in the brood. As his eyes settled on Japal, he winked one of them. Crafty old bird, Japal thought. After they left, we learned that the vessel was called the Spirit of Vengeance. You of all, all will undoubtedly hear many tales of it as you go through your studies, young ones. A week after they had left, our captain had gotten a report of their conflict. Jubal felt pride. Like the storyteller he is, that old bider is letting those youngling broodlings stir in the moment. They had stumbled across a door last patrol, three ships against their lone spirit. In that fight, they had won, just barely. It was reported the crew had actually depressurized their ship and feigned loss. When the Dorlath came close, clinging to the outside of the ship, they had boarded the outer hulls of the Dorlath ship. All of the Dorlath ships were found cut open, dead in the void. The elder bider told the wide-eyed brood. Jebel couldn't help but quip, Only fools corner humans. I was humans changed their ship armor and tactics after that. That ship would go on to be a terror of the Dolrath. It was even present when the humans destroyed Dolrath Nursery for ships. Many young Dolrath void ships died in the engagement. Something humans would play to mourn greatly. You see, younglings, you are right to fear them. The old bider said with a visible relaxation in his shoulders. But they are not uncaring. They value life, even that of their beasts and their intelligent machines. As the old bider looked towards him, Jopal couldn't help but think the next part was aimed at him. They love their beasts, machines, and friends as one of their own. Perhaps even more so. As the old bider fell silent, drinking from his drink, Jopal couldn't help but smile. Unconsciously, he reached down and rubbed his prosthetic leg. It had been a gift from the human's and was invisible if you weren't aware of it. Silently he thought. It never ceases to amaze me, the old Bider's loyalty to them. I wonder what he would think if he knew that he had it backwards. After serving with them in the last war, I wanted to be human. And they were kind enough to let me. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1903. Story number one. You ain't seen nothing yet, written by the real Federal. Ambassador Sadanos, eight legs, could barely maintain traction on the marble floor as he skidded into the office of his human liaison officer. His four eyes whirled in their shocking pink color that indicated an alarm-slash-terror. Friend Douglas Johnson, he blurted out through the translator, his labored breath whistling in and out through the spiracles. It is a catastrophe. Administrator Second Class Doug Johnson looked up from his desk in concern. What's up, Sada? Were the environmental controls in the mansion unacceptable? Was there a problem with the food we provided? The ambassador's eyes deepened to a pinkish red of alarm slash anger. The source stem controls and the food are irrelevant. It's all finished. War has broken out. Doug stood up in alarm. War? Jesus, where, when? I haven't seen any reports on the verd about the Mathari being at war. Who's attacking you? The eye color shifted from red to purple of anger slash sorrow was immediate. What are you talking about? We aren't at war, friend Douglas Johnson. You are! You swore that your people had ceased all conflicts between groups of your own species. And now, this... it's all over. My mission is a failure. I will be sent home in disgrace, and your people will be cut off from contact with the all other races." His head and antennae drooped as his eyes changed to black-blue of utter despair. Doug did a quick access check to all of the major news nets, while the ambassador's eyes got darker and darker. After a few minutes, he looked up to the nearly broken Mothmari and said, well, hoping to break him out of his funk, Mr. Ambassador. I've scanned every major newsfeed, and uh, other than a few localized murder, death, kills, there are no reports of any conflicts, major or minor, anywhere in the human sphere, let alone war. Who did you get this information from, and what did they say?" The ambassador's eyes flashed red. I saw the conflict start with my own eyes. I watched as two forces faced each other on some battlefield I know not where. There were obvious discussions that led to some sort of threat display. The two armies then took the field in some sort of ritualized hand-to-hand combat. The level of violence was so overwhelming, I could scarcely maintain consciousness. After witnessing several casualties, I ran down here to inform you before I contacted my government. We warned you that no species at wars upon its own people is welcome in the Galactic Combine. Mr. Ambassador, I can assure you that no human group is at war with another. I would appreciate it if you could provide me with a video that you saw so that I can verify its authenticity before respective governments need to be involved. The ambassador waved to the Hollywood projector. It was being broadcast by your own people on channel S-45 for all to see. Doug looked at the agitated Mothmori and then said out loud, Della, activate hollow channel S-45. The projector activated, showing two groups of massive humans squaring off One set in black uniforms, the other in red. Doug looked at the ambassador. Sitter, this isn't war. It's the Rugby World Cup between Tonga and New Zealand. This is a sport, not combat. It's played for enjoyment. The ambassador watched as the huge men ran around the field, flinching each time two of them bashed into each other. He looked from the screen back to Doug, then back to the screen, and finally back to Doug. His voice was weak. Friend Douglas... The impact that these humans are enduring would completely shatter the skeleton of any member of the Gigalactic Combine, except perhaps the Silicates. How are they not dying? I have seen actual combat footage of Combine soldiers in battle that do not have this level of violence, and you say your people play this for enjoyment? Thug smiled. Yes, my friend. Rugby is a huge rush to play. The running, the hitting, the tackling. Heck, I used to play myself when I was in school. Not at this level, of course, but it's great fun. I mean, there is the occasional broken bone, lost tooth, or dislocated shoulder to deal with, but there is nothing like it. The ambassador's eyes took on the yellow hue of horror. You participated in an activity that breaks or damages limbs, causes you to lose body parts, and you speak of it casually as if you were taking a stroll in the garden. Is your entire race insane? Doug just shook his head and laughed. (laughs) Oh, Mr. Ambassador, you've only been here two days. You ain't seen nothing yet. End of story. Story number two. Death by Immortality, written by Adriel. Our favorite tactic for destroying civilizations is a strange one, but it's been quite effective. We offer a gift, Medical Immortality. Such a gift is never turned down, and the consequences are never taken into account. The same cycle of events always occurs. In the first fraction of a generation, there is massive cultural stagnation. Death by old age has a way of freshening the ideas of a species. After a full generation would have normally passed, resource wars begin to cripple the species. No economy can handle a doubling in size over such a short time span. Finally... The select few begin to own absolutely everything. The masses die off, leaving just a few threats. A people to kill, an echo of an empire their species once was. The result is a drained, fractured, and weakened species that loses the ability to adapt. In search of more resources, we traveled to a new area where no one had learned the true cost of immortality. After a long journey, we found an empire that called themselves Humanity. They spread quickly, but they were greedy. Their entire race would accept our gift before the consequences could be discovered. As it turns out, humanity had solved all of these problems already. When humans grow bored, they seek new problems and new stimuli. Many move to other planets just for a change in scenery. Resource wars had already taken billions of lives before we found them, and a system of government was put in place to prevent more death. As for the situation where a powerful few controlled everything, they've been in that situation since long before they industrialized. Mistakes have been made. This war just got a lot harder. End of story. Story number three. Humans are up to the challenge. Written by I.M. Ashtrian. Speaking frankly, humans have never been a match for us. But a man versus a stag, and a stag will win, but that's where the problem comes. A man will watch that battle, learn from the mistakes, and then challenge the stag, thinking he knows how to win. Then he will lose, but another man will watch the battle. This continues on for a while, until a man finally does win. That man does one of a few things. He claims to be superior because he won where others lost. Continues to challenge until he eventually dies. Or he starts teaching the next warriors what he learned. That is the terrifying thing. Humans have a unique ability to evolve their minds. They can instill a new lungling with the knowledge of ages. Preparing them for a future beyond present capabilities. Two generations ago, a stag never lost a fight. Ten years ago, it was one in twenty chance. Now, at best, it is fifty-fifty. Though, if I'm honest, that number is probably only so high, for my pride's sake. One hundred years ago, the strange beings escaped from the crater they had caused, spreading out like a disease, destroying forests and ecosystems that had been cultivated for centuries, all in the name of their self-preservation. We watched them, waiting to see how long their hunger would last. Two years later, it was decided their hunger knew no bounds, We established a boundary and told ourselves that we acquiesced that land to the newcomers. As they had survived a fall from the stars, we felt that they earned at least a little respite. But at that boundary, we waited for them to arrive, and when they did, we delivered our ultimatum. Any beast of theirs which crosses the boundary would be subject to battle immediately. For years, the boundary was a success. Young Bucks would earn their place in the herd by patrolling the boundary, battling the newcomers whenever they went past the border. It was a chore. After years, we no longer feared the lives of our young Alvin patrol. Until the unthinkable happened, and a newcomer defeated a Buck in battle. This battle was witnessed by both sides, as the newcomer rarely came alone anymore, but watched as one would cross the border and fight making noise as the fight occurred. Of course, a number of our own would stand back at the ready in case others decided to run through during the battle. The bipedal contender managed to avoid a charge with the buck, even though it was a well-executed charge. Swung his arms around the charging buck's neck and leapt onto his back, grabbing hold of the buck's antlers and forcing its head down while impeding his forelegs, causing the buck to crash into the ground. Neither got up from the fall, but a victory was earned, and the watching newcomers quieted their reverie of the spectacle turned and went back. It was another two years before another was victorious, and this time the newcomer was able to get up. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1904 Story Number 1 Pluto Has Fallen Written by British Tea Company Sensing that they were close to the Pluto colony, Captain Warren rose from his seat and made way for the cockpit. Built to accommodate three full squads, the dropship's passenger's base felt almost lonely with just one. Having long accustomed to standing in steps that were in motion, the captain found little issue with his short sojourn. Earning a wary glance from both the pilot and the co-pilot as he stepped into their personal cubbyhole hall. The pair voiced their objections silently, for Pluto Colony was already in visual range. The sight of the colony's dome featuring such a gaping hole that could be seen from several miles away bode ill for the possibility of survivors. Colony's been dark for sixteen hours. I see no power readings, which means no life support. Survivors are possible though. I won't lie, Captain. Not likely. The pilot said as he glanced back up. Though, I'll admit, I don't like the idea of leaving anyone behind, even if their chances aren't great. I'm a bit more concerned about what caused that hole, Warren said as he glanced at the breach that would have been easily large enough to accommodate a ship three times the size of the one he was riding in. Whether it's a freak accident or terrorists, we need to at least make sure the brass know about how this happened. There was a brief pause in his speech as he gave a slight dry chuckle. (laughs) On the right side, we don't need to ask anyone's permission to enter. Bring us in, we'll get a clear view of what happened from there. A nod came from the pilot as the dropship decelerated to a more manageable velocity, though the hole in question was more than large enough to accommodate. A potential collision could probably chip the paint of their hull, or worse yet, disrupt their cloak. When wandering into an unknown situation like this, it was better to be discreet. After all, there was a non-zero possibility they were landing in the aftermath of a terrorist attack. The team was deployed just near the site of the breach. The cloak of the dropship shimmered just a bit as ten figures landed into Ghost Town before them. An eerie silence pervaded the area before them as Andrew, the team's engineer, took out his PDA and pointed it at the hole as though aiming a gun. Forensics calculations determined the breach's origin came from outside the colony. Plasma weaponry— not a chance in hell that it was done with IEDs. Repeated blasts from lower yield cannons, maybe someone offered. Not a chance. This was done in one hit. Whomever came here brought some serious firepower to bear. That bode ill. Even these smaller domes were designed to survive against anything short of a direct hit from a nuclear missile. If insurgents had gotten their hands on a plasma cannon large enough to breach a colony dome, that meant they likely had gotten their hands on a fully capable battleship. That meant that insurrections that had thought to have been ended months ago wasn't quite dead, as the brass would believe. At least, with the damage identified, they could sweep for survivors. Or corporates. Stick together, Warren said as he glanced around, rifle at the ready his fingers strumming a rhythm with every breath he took. If some rebels have gotten their hands in capital-class weaponry, they absolutely came in force. Best-case scenario, they've left it ready, and maybe there's someone still alive to shed light on the situation. If not... His voice trailed off as his suit's interface began to rapidly flash warning signals, and in an instant, they saw the Horde. It was not the throngs of rebels that they had been expecting, but a swarm of chittering creatures. He'd never been a huge fan of spiders, but seeing them the size of dogs and with glistening white fangs, Warren couldn't help but scream. His gun followed suit in an instant. The formerly still colony was abuzz with both gunfire and alien creatures. For a while, it seemed like despite the sheer number of their foes, the squad will hard out. Not a single one of their foes reached them until the ground beneath them burst open in a shower of debris and the serpentine creatures with the face of a squirt came to greet them. For all of its stupefying hideousness, its presence was but a boon to the spider-like minions it commanded, and they were egged on. That was when the squad made a run for the dropship. A few guys didn't make it. Though the troopers had a significant head start, the horde overtook the slower members of their squad easily. Their muffled screams upon Pluto's unatmosphered surface was a sound Warren would never forget for the rest of his life. The mad dash through maybe what was 50 meters at most felt like an eternity. Yet relief was in sight as the dropship uncloaked and its forward-facing turrets opened fire, literally ripping apart the pursuers. He had almost made it too, almost made it to when the serpentine alien, the squid face, took a deep breath, and from a distance that would have impressed any drill instructor, struck him, square in the back with a glob of acid. He fell to the ground, he screamed silent as his suit desperately tried to keep his internal systems working. The mind-numbing pain engulfed him, to the point where he didn't realize Andrew picked him up, and carried him into the dropship. Warren's next memories were fleeting. He could only notice seven other figures in the nine that had originally come with, He felt his suit being removed off of him as Mitchell, the team's medic, fumbled into the supply container filled with medical supplies. And the last thing he remembered seeing was staring out the viewport and in the distance seeing the lumbering mass of what looked like a ship, alien and horrifying in all of its grim expanse. We have to warn Earth, was the last phrase he uttered before his world went End of story. Jupiter Has Fallen, written by British Tea Company. Compared to the military juggernauts that form the Mars and Earth defense fleets, the Jupiter defense fleet seemed hardly worth mentioning when it came to considering the massed naval power of mankind. Reflecting the relatively minute populations of Europa and Titan colonies, The entire Jupiter defense fleet was smaller than the Martian sub. to say nothing about what Mother Earth had at its disposal. Yet, compared to Pluto colony, which hadn't even had an established defense fleet, and then the various scattered habitats orbiting Saturn which had less than a dozen ships to their names, Jupiter colony might as well have been a military superpower. Ever since first contact roughly three years ago, Jupiter had been readying itself. A defense fleet of 37 spaceships had ballooned to a proud 108, among them Jupiter's first battle group proudly constructed at the Europa shipyards. Rear Admiral Enrique Garcia had accepted his station aboard the JDF Spain with a proud heart. At the staggering 512 meters in length, the Spain was one of the newest generations of battleships. Equipped with a new shielding technology and bristling with an array of weapons all tailored to slaying the invaders. At his back, he had 27 heavy cruisers, 30 light cruisers, and 50 destroyers, with an additional 200 escort vessels generously donated from the Martian defense fleet. The naval power of Jupiter had increased twofold, where the aliens had previously attacked colonies barely capable of much as mustering armed resistance. This time, they had a real fight. Like many of his fellow men that had read the reports on the extrasolar invaders and the callous destruction of the outer colonies, Garcia was more than eager to break the back of the invaders, and what other place to do it besides his home of Europa? And upon the surface of the two inhabited moons of Jupiter, the civilian population had been evacuated to Mars, a comforting thought for the elderly officer as he thought of the prospect of his grandchildren facing the threat of these vile invaders. Instead, if the aliens were to make the beeline for the surface of the two colonies, they would be greeted by nothing but an array of anti orbital batteries as well as a laser fire of over two million JDF soldiers. He could have mused on for hours on end as to the preparedness of his forces, but eventually, Battle would come. Peering over a series of screens, Commander Hill was the first to announce the battle's beginning. The alien ships detected just at our range, estimated contacts roughly 900 ships. A brief wave of unease washed over the bridge, and there was a palpable sense of apprehension which danced at every ship. Though many of the crew may have not experienced the dread before, Garcia himself was a veteran of the various colonial slap-fighting which had threatened to shatter humanity's unity all those decades ago. Gesturing for the Commandant Hill to step aside, the grey-haired Admiral gave a confident smile as his voice projected to all channels. Steady, man. Just remember, one human is worth ten of those bastards. Those odds are in our favor, not theirs. On my command, prepare to fire, and let us smite them from the stars. And with a single word, mankind's day of wrath lit up the black of the void in an orchestra of flame. A symphony of emerald plasma and azure rays colored the void, immolating the hateful ships that plowed their way forward. Xeno husks shrieked their silent death cries into the cold vacuous space. A few lucky survivors managed to get close enough to Titan and Europa to make their payloads to the surface. Those fire ships were hunted down by the packs of fierce Martian escorts, the majority of their drop pods never even setting foot on the surface as the colonial defense ripped them apart. Beyond a few scattered fleet losses, the initial contact had left the aliens reeling. This was the comeuppance these invaders would face for their atrocities at Pluto and Saturn. This was the assembled might of humanity, when even just a fraction of itself was dedicated to its own protection. A feeling of relief washed over Rear Admiral as he took a deep breath, observing the detonations in the distance through the viewport. Minimal casualties, more contacts detected. Looks like we've got a second wave incoming, Commandant Hill said as she looked up from her station. A bit smaller than the First Fleet. Hold positions! Let them come, Garcia said as he observed outside. Far beyond the range of his eyesight, a few escorts and destroyers lifelessly drifted into the endless void. Tell the damaged ships to pull back behind the lines. There's no need for unnecessary losses. With only the newest of his ships having shields, it was his duty to ensure his men's lives were preserved. These ships would do far better to absorb the brunt of the bioplasm that the enemy spewed at them in large but relatively ineffectual quantities. No sooner had the second wave of alien ships cut to pieces did Hill once again make an announcement. More contacts detected. Steady now! We'll repel them as we did the others, Garcia said. An unbidden bead of sweat slid down the back of his neck as he stepped over to Hill's station. Losses were still minimal this time around, with more escorts being lost. Yet this third fleet was almost twice the size of the first with sensors detecting far larger vessels within its ranks. The possibility that the first two waves was merely a test of human defenses poked itself into Garcia's mind. Yet he dismissed the notion. The first fleet alone could have destroyed both Pluto and Saturn settlements without issue. They were defenseless compared to Jupiter. This new fleet was tougher than the first two combined, but still, It would only be a mere speed bump. The exchange of fire occurred this time as far more costly to the fleet. Almost two dozen ships were lost in the exchange, with at least a few heavy cruisers suffering terminal damage to their hull. Yet, even as the third contact was torn apart by the human defences, Hill made her announcement again. It was only the fourth time. Yet her words had dimmed in both volume and resolve. More contacts detected... More contacts detected. More contacts detected. Just how many times did she utter those damnable words in this battle? Garcia had lost count. Around him the fickle tide finally turning against the JDF. One of the heavy cruisers at the forefront had detonated in a spectacular explosion, showering the bioplasma and kinetic rounds. Several ships were leaving formation the damage sustained making it unfeasible for them to remain without being easy pickings for the aliens. His formation was falling apart, and worse still, what started as a manageable trickle had now evolved into an unending tide of drop pods that were falling upon the surface of both Titan and Europa. His own thoughts were drowned out to him by the panicked cries of his fleet. But the sounds of the battle on the surface was far worse than the cacophony of gunfire and that distant but ever-encroaching chittering of a million aliens. And even as the battered fleet weathered the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh wave, an eighth one came, followed by a ninth. The enemies were unending, their resolve unbroken no matter the losses they took. It was madness, and some, upon the assessment of the situation, would have fallen to despair. For a brief moment, Garcia did until he heard the panic cries of Hill and the groaning of the ship's hull like a wounded beast. Get everyone off the ship. Signal the Paris to allow shuttles to land. Signal the fleets to retreat, said the Admiral as his decision was made. The battle was lost, yet clarity had finally found him in the eye of the storm. Maybe it could be for Mars. Tell them we have given the invaders a black eye, and you make sure that they're ready. With a smile, he added, And Commandant, Tell your father to give them hell if they ever get to Earth. Hill gave a no-verbal response, yet it was plain as day. The fleet would have far better chance of disengaging if someone remained behind to distract their pursuers. And what better candidate than a powerful ship capable of weathering the storm? Clenching her teeth at the prospect of losing both a valued officer and a good ship. Hill did what she was told. And as far as Garcia, he remained alone upon the bridge of the Spain, ever the man's man. He alone steered his ship into the heart of the enemy fleet. The shields, merciful in their timing, had reactivated just as his crew had evacuated, leaving him with plenty of time to buy for his men. In the distance, he saw the grim expanse of the alien fleet, so numerous that they seemed to blot out the distant stars in their unending tides. He saw the massive mothership, a lumbering eight kilometer long behemoth that boggled all sensibilities when one considered it was a living creature. He saw the shields flicker off and die for a final time, the hull of his proud vessel being scarred and battered as its guns grew silent one by one, and as the prow of his ship collided with the particularly large alien bioship, claiming both it and the Spain in a magnificent detonation. Garcia's only regret was how he couldn't help the soldiers left on the surface. End of story. Mars Has Fallen, written by British Tea Company. There hadn't been any living memory of the red Martian skies until today. Having long been converted to a lush world of blue like Earth, every last human still standing on Mars finally experienced the world as their forefathers did ashen red and choked with dust. Hector cast a rueful gaze upon the ruins around him, holding up his flare. A nearby dropship altered its course for the lone soldier. His armor was in tatters, and around him were the corpses of a significant number of aliens. Sweat, dirt, and blood caked the wary soldier as the transport finally touched down, opening its doors to reveal a single figure waiting for him. You're the only one left, the other man asked as he gazed around. The man wore no helmet, but his combat armor insignia indicated that he was a captain. Are you sure there are no other survivors? Hector gave no verbal response, slumped his shoulders and a shaking head where all the captain needed to confirm no one else had made it. Even though there was little time to spare, the two strangers shared a moment of silence together. Such a lapse in concentration could have been costly as the chittering of the spider alien was the only thing the two had for a warning. The next thing Hector knew, the captain had shoved him aside like he was weighed nothing, and falling right into his clenched grasp was an arachnid, the size of a house cat. It writhed and clawed against the man's arm, only succeeding at shredding off the gloves and revealing a hand of shining metal. The captain's expression darkened as his hand clenched around the bug, the sound of rotten fruit being crushed, echoed before the transport as its twitching remains fell to the ground. Offering a hand to Hector, Captain Warren helped him to his feet as the two men entered the transport and lifted off. "'I was worried no one would still be alive to pick up. At least one man is better than none,' the cyborg remarked dryly as he looked at the soldier staring at his arm. "'Like it. It's a good memoir of what those bugs did to me on Pluto. Thankfully, it looks like you won't be having one.' The joke did little to alleviate the mood of the mostly empty transport ship. A proper view was given for both of them on the state of Mars. Once mankind's proudest achievement, the red planet was now dotted with burning buildings and the wreckage of the once mighty vessels. Human blood soaked the earth, mingling with the red dust. And yet, to think, for all the toll that had been paid, the Martians had to flee from the proud little rock they called home. There was at least a silver lining to this. There were ships that finally left atmosphere. Hector could see from outside the viewport the remnants of the Martian defense fleet. Remnants was perhaps a poor choice of word. Bulk's were probably described as far better as what was still the vast majority of the armada remained in formation. This was not a disarrayed retreat which had to be done at Jupiter. It was a calculated assessment of odds, and the choice had been made that Mars's proud soldiers would have to abandon their homes so that they could live to fight another day. Yet, something felt off to Hector. The bulk of the fleet is active, the sergeant said as he glanced outside. Why are we retreating? Far beyond the visual scope of things, a seething swarm of fire vessels had ceased their engagement with the fleet and began to cling to the planet. Some of them even entered the atmosphere descending upon the Red World in droves, mainly the now abandoned settled areas. There was just too damn many of them, Captain Warren sighed. His mechanical eyes fixed upon the battle group within the human fleet. It was only a small bit, but what was noticeable was the presence of the super battleship South America that stood at the head of the formation. Unlike the other ships, it plowed straight into the alien fleet. Warren could only picture what was going on inside the heads of the crewmen. There would be no retreat for them. Don't you worry, though, assuming if they make it to Earth at all. We've got basically the entire MDF and EDF combined to take them on. That's one battle they will not win. Not make it to Earth, huh? If we're turning tail and fleeing, how don't they make it to Earth? Morin remained silent as the ship trudged on. He doubted Hector would see it from the distance. But the sight of the laser trails of the bioplasma firing from the tiny blips told him that all he knew, South America, had made contact with the enemy. Her hull had been loaded with maybe thousands of nuclear warheads. When Saturn Fleet had identified the presence of a massive alien ship that was likely some kind of command or mothership, Ross knew what had to be done. The sacrifice of one of Earth's prized super battleships was no easy thing. Each one of those titans had been constructed with the care and pride of a people who had wanted to solidify their dominion upon the stars. Each one of those arcs held the lives of countless thousands of men and women who had agreed to a one-way trip for just so Earth could have a fighting chance. It was heartbreaking. He felt hot tears stinging from his non-mechanical eye. But his answer came when the explosion came, in such enormity. Even Hector, who possessed no cybernetics, saw it clear as day as the fireball stretched on for what was thousands of kilometers, so great that portions of Mars would be irreparably devastated by the blast. There was no telling how many alien vessels were destroyed, but worse yet, there was no telling it worked. In the best-case scenario, the aliens would be like ants. The death of a queen would be like the death of their hive. In the worst-case scenario... All it did was briefly paralyze the chain of command these creatures had. If there was even a chain of command. Unable to shake that feeling of dread that still persisted in his human half, Moran pointed over to the explosion at the very least. Not a lot of bugs must have died in that blast. That's how. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, Lord Azrakal. It's difficult to pronounce Dragzoon WRE. Holly's sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.